Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. We've got a lot of stuff going on. Video games are happening again as we head into May and June where we would have had E3, but we're getting instead kind of a trickle of announcements yeah. and previews of announcements. So we're going to be talking about the new Assassin's Creed game. We're going to talk about some Last of Us news. We're going to talk about some recent games we've been playing, including the brand new Streets of Rage 4, which is fucking phenomenal. Uh, and some other just fun stuff along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah, just a grab bag kind of episode. The real podcast, Sean, is the friends we make along the way. It's very true. Yeah. Yeah. All 327 of them, because that's the number we're at now. And I am officially at the point where I can, I have to look it up every week. Uh, yes, yeah. It's the, the number's so high that it's like, wait, are we 327? Were we 227? What the fuck is even happening anymore? It's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. Arguably too many. But we're going to go ahead talk about stuff today sean let's start as we do every week with the plague cast yep and i might have to get political for a moment okay so my brother came back from japan this week okay as, cool, you, as yeah. you guys know my brother was in japan for for over a year teaching english uh i was there in the month of january hanging out with him before when coronavirus was just this little thing in a town called wuhan mm-hmm. that we thought man that sucks for china i hope they deal with it well um and, and you know, hopefully we'll never hear about it again. Yep. That didn't happen. No, it didn't. No, it's yeah. spread all over the world. And the United States happens to have the stupidest person on the face of the planet in charge of everything. Mm-hmm. And so we've had the worst response on the face of the planet. And so, Sean, you would think in a good public health scenario that if you have someone, a family member, who has been overseas for over a year in Japan, which has not been hugely hit although it's getting worse but is in more of the general vicinity of places that have been hugely hit Mm -hmm. and then travels internationally that when they get back to american soil maybe there would be tests ready and they could get a test and they could know oh you know what they have it they don't have it they're safe to come home yeah that's that that would be the expected structure that would be in place especially when this has been going on for several months yeah Yeah. no we have none of that Uh we have none of that so thomas is isolating himself in one room um, we've been breaking it a little bit because it's just a little too awkward, but like when we're playing games together, he is like seven or eight feet away with a mask on with a controller that I do not tie, making him use his own goddamn controllers. But like when we have dinner, he is at a different table in another room, mm-hmm. you know, and we're going to have to do this for like two weeks because that's how long it can take to present. Yeah. Um, and that is not a huge problem in the realm of coronavirus problems that have happened, obviously. Yeah. But it is an avoidable one. Again, if, one that if if, they, if it was like the first couple of weeks, it would make sense. Maybe that we weren't in that place. I mean, we should have been prepared. Yeah, it would seen it coming. It wouldn't be acceptable. It might make sense. It would no, not yeah, be. like it would be okay. You know, government responses are slow and dysfunctional, so that's what you'd expect. Even though it's not what you'd want, but we are several months into it, and the fact that we as a nation don't have any reasonable amount of infrastructure around dealing with this is. You know, a massive crisis. Yeah, I mean, if I can get on my political soapbox for a minute, I'm already been on it. Yeah, it is maddening, Sean. We are in an environment now where states are starting to reopen, primarily mm-hmm. red states, but not only. Colorado's doing some stuff with it. Yeah, we're and, like do like phasing in like more businesses basically that can operate. Yeah. And there is no science behind a single state doing that. Mm-hmm. Not a single state because, you know, I mean, it, it's really obvious in some states like Texas is reopening despite having cases growing day by day, which is going to be a humongous disaster. 
But either way, the only way to safely reopen, as every expert on the face of planet Earth will tell you, is to have robust testing in place, robust tracing in place, and other forms of public health mitigation. Yeah. None of which we have. And it's not necessarily the governor's fault. Red state, blue state, some red state governors have done great jobs, bad, you know, it, it's, it's mixed. Yeah. But, like, governors can't do that. That's a federal response. Donald Trump was warned about this in briefings for months on end, even before coronavirus happened in Wuhan, China. Cut every fucking program, did nothing for it. It's, it's a, it speaks to the end times dysfunction of our government that he is even still in office after this. That he has not been forced to resign or something, mm-hmm. you know? Like, it is, it's truly when you like sum it up and say what's happening... You feel like a crazy person because the world is truly crazy. It's like the fucking Joker. Not even like the fucking Heath Ledger good Joker who was, you know, fairly competent at what he did. But like fucking Jack Nicholson Joker got into office. No, it's Jared Leader Joker. Jared there Leader we go. Joker there you go. Got into that's, yeah, that's the one. That's the one. That's the one. Not even the real Joker. Yes. The dude with the tattoo that says damaged on his forehead. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um, who couldn't even keep Harley Quinn around for more than one movie. You know? And, Who and couldn't keep himself around for more, more than, than one, one movie. movie. Yeah. And had yeah. to go watch another movie where another man played the Joker. That yeah. was fucking awesome. No, that's who we've got in fucking office. And I truly... I just... Sometimes, Sean, I don't know if you've had this feeling. We've talked a lot uh, in the past few years about the stochastic terrorism of the Trump administration. Of just terrorizing the American public on a daily basis. With not just incompetence, but needling the public. But it truly feels like there's this there's this extra layer of stress above and beyond the global pandemic of a government that not only doesn't care, but pretty much actively wants to kill you and your loved ones. And it is, I don't know, I just need to bring it up because it's it's been on my mind and it's truly, it's maddening, it's like distracting me from everything. It's, it's fucking awful. Yeah, it's one of the things that's like... One of the major fears I have had about the Trump presidency for a long time is the, you know, almost immediately after he took office, um, huge swaths of the executive branch were basically vacated of personnel. Yeah. Um, either by people leaving or by Trump firing people and then not replacing those positions, whether that's people like low on the ladder or at the very top that are running whole administration. Yeah, I mean, half of the cabinet is acting at this point. Exactly. So it is... And, that started happening almost immediately and it's just continued to happen without those positions being refilled. And that's one of those things of like, for me, the like primary thing thinking about coming into an election season is just the raw need to get somebody into office that has a basic level of governance. Honestly, beyond any level of individual like policymaking and stuff like yeah. that, there's a certain level of we need a functioning government. We need one that yes. can do things. Um, because our government can't right now, not just because Trump is an idiot, but because the after effect of his idiocy has created this massive vacuum of manpower in the government that is truly disastrous. That means that when we're hit with something like this, whether it would be, you know, it, it's the biggest crisis of all is that it is one of the biggest public health crises, crises we would face, even if we had a com- uh, competent government in place. Um, but even if it was something on a smaller scale, I mean, we've already seen this with like Puerto Rico and stuff like that earlier, but like other disasters um, that are not like covering the whole nation, anything like that. If we don't have a functioning federal government, we don't have an ability to respond to those things. 
Yeah, I mean, it's honestly, it's probably the best argument for Joe Biden, and he should really make a bumper sticker with it, because I would put it on my car, which is Joe Biden could functionally staff the executive branch. Yes, we would yes. have people in the government. Yes, he knows people, he, he can call them up, you can put them in place. Yes, he can hire people, and he's not so petty that he would just fire <laughs> someone on a whim, you know? Yeah, and I mean, honestly, it's not just Trump. This is the, this is, we are living in the dream of the Republican Party since Reagan, which is to drown the government to the point that in a national emergency, everyone fends for themselves. Yes. And, this is, and, this is what Ayn yeah, Rand would employ, want. yeah, economic yeah. policies that make sure that the people who already have the means to weather these kind of crises just accumulate more and more power and wealth. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's an important point. It sounds flippant, but like this, you know, in some sense... Some of this would be happening whether it was Trump or Ted Cruz or someone. It would be, it's worse with Trump. I don't think Ted Cruz would have like gutted the entire executive branch like yeah. Trump has, but it would be good. Yeah. Because it is just like, because it's like what you're saying of, you know, in, whether how effectively an individual state government is responding to this crisis is not tied to whether they're Democrat or. Republican. Yeah, there have been good governors on both sides doing good work and bad on both sides. Yeah, because bad. something like this isn't necessarily a partisan style thing. No. It is, it is just basic crisis management. There's, um, there's meat and potatoes governance that, you know, for the most part, like not modern Trumpy Republicans, but normal Republicans and Democrats have the capacity to be good at and don't necessarily disagree on. Yeah, and it's the kind of stuff that normally you don't ever focus on because most people that are in those positions are basically competent at those jobs in the yes. sense that they can keep things running, right? And because part yeah. of the job of governments is kind of keeping things running and we currently have our, you know, the greatest executive in the country does not know how to keep things running. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I've, I follow the news more closely than, than anyone else in my family um, partially because I'm, I'm younger than my parents and my brother's been in Japan. So, so it's kind of yeah. by default, right? And, you know, when they, sometimes they ask me, like, when do you think this is going to end? And I say, it's, it's not going to end while he's president. Like, we, yeah. all have to, we all have to understand that, that, that while this man is president, it's going to be a muddle. I'm not saying it's not going to get better in some places for some periods of time, but it could also get much worse in some places for some periods of time. Like, you know, I, I think we're going to have a rolling series of openings and shutdowns. Mm -hmm. I yeah. don't think we're going to have adequate testing at any point in 2020. I, you know, we're not going to have the South Korea style system where you can go to a drive through on your way to work, get tested and, and be safe in that knowledge and then do testing. and tra Like, we're not going to have any of those things that countries with, with fewer resources than we do yeah. um, can do. And, and that's just not going to, you know, that we're not going to have any kind of change in this course until at a minimum, if we do our fucking job, January 20th, 2021. Yeah. And then that, that person, no matter how competent, will still have a lot of a, a job ahead of them because you can't just snap your fingers day one and fix things. Yeah. And I, and I think that's, that's something that is, is, needs to be said because I think a lot of people still have this fantasy that like it'll be done by the end of the summer and we'll be back to normal and it's just not going to happen. No, yeah. You know, my I my current new home state is Iowa because that's where I live and work. Right now I'm living and working from Colorado because it's uh -huh. all remote. But like, you know, our governor Kim Reynolds who was newly elected last uh, in 2018 uh, voted against her immediately lost because I had moved to Iowa and you know, that's what happens there. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, um, 
you know, she is not only forcing everything to reopen in Iowa, despite Iowa having some of the worst outbreaks in the Midwest because of meatpacking plants, mm-hmm. including in my area. Waterloo is near Iowa City, and that has one of the biggest outbreaks in the country because of the meatpacking plant conditions. Um, she's also saying that anyone who does not go back to work because they feel unsafe will not be eligible for unemployment benefits, which means they are being fo- it's, they're having to choose between having money on the, to put food on the table or potentially exposing themselves to a deadly virus. Not yeah. just exposing themselves, but their friends and family. And it is sociopathic governance. It is... It is the idea that, like, the economy is something that exists outside of people, which yeah. it doesn't. The no. economy exists because people agree that it exists in act in commerce. Yeah. Like, that's literally what the economy is. And it is the most infuriating but like foreseeable reaction to this from a lot of people from like american political thought in discourse that has privileged the economy as this abstract concept for so long that it, it in a lot of people's minds has become completely removed from what it actually is which is a vague term referring to the general entity that exists through the action of commerce and trade between individual persons yeah it is not a thing that exists outside of people that has its own mind or will or health that exists regardless of the society from which it originates. It is something that is a product created directly by us. And if we get sick and we start dying, whether people, some people are going to their jobs or not, the economy is going to get fucking worse. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that, that is so infuriating is that there's no world where the economy is going to be good while this is going on. Yeah. In part because the genuinely inspiring part of this entire story is seeing how the vast majority of the American people have come together and sheltered at home and made masks and practiced social. Like, it's actually been kind of ins- – I didn't think it was going to be this easy to get people to do it. There's been yeah. the, the protesters who are a small but loud band of idiots. Yeah. But they're a very small minority. That's an amazing thing. Like, that's a World War II level mobilization that I think a lot of people thought just couldn't happen in this country anymore. Yeah, and it did. And, we're and, then seeing, the government... and we're seeing the impacts of the social distancing now on, yeah. on the number of cases, which is nice. Which is nice. Yeah. But then our government didn't do anything at that time. And that's what's, that's what's infuriating. Yeah. So it gives you some faith in the American people and less in the American government. And that's where we are. And I don't know. That's a very 2020 kind of way to summarize things. Yeah. I mean, I have had no faith in the American government <laughs> for at least four years, if not longer yeah. than that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's, not a, it's not a new state of mind. It's just a more dour state of mind. It's also been fun during this economy, Sean, how many times I've gotten to explain to people that money is made up and not a real thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what it is. It's just like people not understanding on a very basic level that a $1 bill doesn't mean jack shit. Like on its own, it has no value. It has value because we have imbued it with value. But if everyone dies, there's nobody left to imbue it with value. Like I've had to have the conversation around the dinner table, you know, someone asked me like, what did they pass in? Like, well, it was this $2 trillion, blah, blah, blah. Like, where do we get that money from? I'm like, well, money's made up. (laughs) That's like my answer. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, "I, I need you to understand this at a basic level. Money isn't real. Yeah. And uh, capitalism, yeah. Like just anyway, sit down and say capitalism. Uh, honestly, I think I think you know Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren should have just done some kind of unity ticket with the slogan "Money isn't real." Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> I think yeah, like Bernie Sanders would not have gotten any of the votes he got because even even our <laughs> radical left is not maybe super smart and well equipped either in this country. 
No, no, it's not. Yeah. All right, uh, let's move on, Sean. Um, if anyone is still listening after our political, I don't know. I think it was a reason yeah. political rant. I mean, and it's just there's no other updates. I think for either of us, really personally, on like no. coronavirus stuff is just is what it is. Um, yeah, yeah, it sucks. I mean, we're both fine. Yeah, we have jobs. We're okay. Our families are okay. Um, but it's still maddening, you know. Because at this point, if you don't know someone who's been personally affected by it, I, you don't know people. <laughs> yeah, that's just the numbers. It's yeah, how it's happening. All right. Um, okay, Sean. Uh, let's do a little bit of housekeeping first. Okay. You know, last week we had our our last episode of Weekly Suit Gundam. Mm-hmm. Not yes. last ever. I just mean our previous episode, which was uh, on yeah. Mobile Suit Gundam Wing. We are hard at work watching After War Gundam X for our next one. That show fucking rocks. So it's I very good. Highly recommend everyone yeah. follow along with that one, especially because it's one of the lesser known Gundam shows, and I had no idea what to expect going into it. Yeah, I'm very happy watching it because in my memory, I had very fond memories of watching it the first time. But it is one of those kind of like Double Zeta Gundam that has a pretty poor reputation in the fandom. And then when I and so it makes me dub, like question myself, like, yeah, am I am I the idiot here? Was I wrong? Was I just seeing something that I wanted to see and wasn't actually there in the show? And then like with Double Zeta, I watch it again. Like, no, this is really fucking good. And it's the Gundam fans that are idiots. Anyone <laughs> who says that Gundam Wing is better than after after Gundam X. I oh, don't know what the fuck you're on. It's immediate. It's it's in every way better. Um, yeah, it's it's better than the good parts of Gundam Wing. Oh, you yeah. don't even have to get to when your Gundam Wing gets bad. I think to see that Gundam X is better. Yes, but so that's a preview. We'll be getting to that either next week or probably the week after that. We'll we'll see how long it takes. I'm hard at work on doing uh, papers for class. Well, that's a whole fucking uh-huh. one of them. I'm doing a very good job on, and one of them is going to be half-assed. That's, that's how okay. it always goes. Yeah. You never have a semester where it's like all of your papers are the great papers. It's, yeah. you, it's the the triage. You're like I'm going to focus my energies on this one that I think is going to be good and I care about, and then this other one, eh, it'll yeah. get in. Yeah, that's the the one semester that wasn't true for me was we had one where we had a visiting professor who could only be there for half the semester, so we did his whole course in one half of the semester. So I got to write his paper in like March. Then one of my other classes had a different kind of assignment for our final thing. And then I only had one other class with a final paper, and I had another two months to work on that. Nice. That was that was the fucking dream mm-hmm. because doing two papers at once is impossible. Yeah. You cannot make them both good. Uh huh. I mean, good. It's not great. Yeah, but one of <laughs> one of them is going to be. It's it's kind of like in you know those kind of horror stories where you have the like twins, and the one twin is like the evil twin that like <laughs> sucked the life force out of the other one in the womb. There's like five X Files episodes that that's basically the premise of. It's basically that is what it feels like. Yes, I will include that audio clip with the email I sent with that paper <laughs> submission. <laughs> All right, where was I? Gundam, we're working on that. Um, but also this week, Sean, you uploaded something to, to your personal YouTube channel. People yes. can find this also on your, your Twitter account, um, where you translated a little Gundam video for us, and I had a jolly old time watching it. Yeah, so this is something I've been wanting to do for a while, um, because one of like the main things I use YouTube for, honestly, is just finding random clips of like live shows that voice actors have done like basically any major anime in japan if people don't know has like a radio show associated with it which is basically just a podcast at this point that has some of the voice actors from the show on it and there's a a small but very passionate community um of people online that translate those kinds of videos and stuff um so i i'm like because i also posted the video i made on the subreddit the seiyu subreddit S-E-I-Y-U-U, which is the Japanese word for voice actor. And so it's just like a really fun way to get access to some kind of content that is usually very, very hard to find over here. 
Um, and I had been sitting on for like two years since before Weekly Suit Gundam, a video or it's two videos that is a three hour basically live show they did in 2018 in Japan, building up to the 40th anniversary of Gundam, which is part of their this massive 40th anniversary Gundam poll they did, which was like, what are the best Gundam shows, Gundam characters, Gundam songs. So that Gundam song cover album that Horiko Motoguchi did is the top 10 songs from that poll. Um, oh yeah, so that's how those were decided, and then and then it's also like the the mobile suits. So it's this big poll that they did, and to announce the results of the poll, they did this live show and had a bunch of guests associated with Gundam on it, including a number of voice actors, and then most importantly for us, I think is Toru Furia, who's the voice actor for Amuro, was there for basically a whole like the second half of that show, and they brought him on when the first time Amuro popped up on the poll, which was when Char's Counterattack won the fifth place on, like, all the Gundam shows slash works, because they included the OVAs and movies on the poll. And so I went and subtitled basically a 15-minute chunk of it, which for the first time I've ever actually done this kind of subtitle translating thing, I realized I probably should have picked a smaller clip just to test the waters, because it's literally the first time I've done anything like this. Um, but I just grabbed his whole section of it, and it's like this solid 15 minutes that is his, like a kind of interview with him and kind of interactions between him and the rest of the panel, and then culminating in him doing two live performances or live readings of famous Amuro scenes. He does the, the new Gundam isn't just for show scene from yep. the end of Char's Counterattack, and then he does... Maybe like the most well-known Amuro scene, which is the "You hit me twice, oyajini Um, the whole bright scene. Um, so they did both of those live. And the main reason why I wanted to to put this up and like get it out there is one, there just wasn't a good English language version of that um, on YouTube, and two. Toto Fudi is so fucking cool. It's unbelievable. Like he's so cool, and it is. Amazing to watch him on a dime. He doesn't, yeah. say, he doesn't sound like Amaro. Just turn it on and sound like he is 40 years younger. And Because the Shars counterattack scene is one thing. Because that's Amaro is firmly an adult and his voice has changed a little bit. Yeah. But going back to 1979 Gundam in 2018, 39 years later. And he sounds exactly like he did in the original cast. How does he do it? It's crazy. Like, yeah, because it is basically back-to-back. He does those two, and it's just... It's absolutely amazing. And then I love um, when he sits down after that second one. Tomokazu Seki, who's the voice actor for Domon, was also yeah. on the show for when G Gundam came up. Um, and, and he's just this, like... Man, Furiya-san's uh, face in the corner is so freaking cool. And everyone's just like, oh my god, you're so cool. Because it's just... He's got a great haircut. Yeah, he's got, he has his Amuro haircut. He's got his um, pocket square that looks like the Gundam head. Like, it's just his whole appearance on that show I found absolutely amazing. So I thought I need to There's, give just, something back to the Gundam community. Let's just put it this way. There's a reason they hired Toru Furia to play the resident bad boy of Dragon Ball, Yamcha. Exactly. Back yeah. when Yamcha was cool. To be yes, yes, yeah. When they, they hired him for cool Yamcha. Um, Which he transitioned very smoothly into silly Yamcha. Yes. Because he's a genius. Yeah, and I, yes. I love that he still shows up to do like the two lines he'll get in an episode of Dragon Ball Super where Yamcha's just an idiot. I mean, he got the fucking baseball episode. That's one yes. of Yamcha's best, best uh-huh. times. Yeah, no, it's great. Uh, Sean, I'm looking at these polls now you're mentioning. Um, 
the theme songs one because that is that album you were talking about that's probably the best of the polls i i think that's a very good top 10 list of gundam songs yeah um the character list i mean char and amuro at one and two that's correct yeah they did a weird thing of where there's two versions of the character list there's one that has um like all the characters that appear in multiple shows are split out so it's like here's quattro bagina versus char's counterattack char versus mobile suit gundam okay. char so the one that has amuro and char at the top is the one that compiles everything because they were like weirdly split up in the in, like the poll they first showed because yeah you know they were like divided between all the different versions of those characters yeah but, yeah. but it's a it's a good list other I, I do think it's funny you can tell Iron Blooded Orphans just aired because it's all over all of these yeah um, and I'm, I know that's a good show it's very just, good there's yeah. a section where the one of the main voice actors for that show is on the show and he does a line reading from the it's, yeah. it's his character's last scene from the end of Iron Blooded Orphans. And I had forgotten just how fucking good the ending of that show is, and I'm very excited to get to it. Yes, nice. I, I, I like the mobile suits list. I like that the F91 snuck in there. Um, the, the number one is the right choice. The number one is the right choice. The, the, yeah. Um, although, is the Ramble Rawl suit isn't on there? Is it? Goof? That's, no, the, the goof's goof on there. It might be the goof custom from 08 the MS team, but I'm pretty sure it's. It might be not be in the top. 10. Yeah, I don't it see. I'm only looking at the top tens, but it yeah, should we'll be. we'll probably go through that poll at some point on yeah. Weekly Suit Gundam. We will because I haven't seen all these. I do like. I mean, most of these they, they seem accurate, except I don't like that Gundam Wing is in the top ten. But G Gundam is in the top ten, right above Gundam Wing, and that puts a giant smile on my face. Japan, you know what you're talking about. Good job, yeah. Japan. I've, yeah, because I might do because again that is it is a three hour live show. So at some point I might pick out a couple of other clips. To do because yeah. there's one where near the end the voice actors for Haman Karn comes onto the show, um, and that whole sequence is fucking amazing. And and having this you know older Japanese woman like come on and do the Haman Karn voice and it's perfect. And then she immediately switches into like polite like like someone you'd run into at, like the grocery store. It's like oh thank you very much. It's like it's like when you see Masako Nozawa do Goku. Exactly. It's just like the switch between I am queen of space, kneel before me, you swine. And oh thank every thanks everyone for for liking <laughs> liking Zeta Gundam so much and everything. And it's yes. that's great. And another really great segment is earlier when uh Domon's voice actor comes on and um, he missed getting in because they showed like the top 25 results and they were like going through all those. He, Domon missed getting on 25 by one. So he, had, he was like number 26. Um, and, and then he also plays a major character in Gundam Seed and that character also barely missed getting to the top 25. Because Tomokazaseki, I think, has played like four characters in Gundam shows over the years. He's come around a lot. Yeah. And none of his characters broke into the the segment shown on the poll and everyone was making fun of like couldn't we have shown the t- spot 26 really there was we 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 invited him onto the show and you couldn't have his character up here that's great i'll have to make sure you have access to uh the weekly stuff podcast youtube channel in case you want to put any of that stuff sure. there yeah just because it would go with all of our uh weekly suit gundam stuff as well but i had not thought of that before but i am glad you put it up you also there are a lot of easter eggs in your subtitles <laughs> Um, which are very good, including in the Amuro gets slapped scene. <laughs> and you are just, you're a good subtitle. You subtitle the way I want subtitles done, which is, um, I think you get more of the kind of fun little nuances of Japanese than a lot of subtitles I see. So I, I did my best. I, yeah. I, I did, my my goal was to make sure I put all the honorifics in there because I feel strongly yes. about that and all those are in there. And then I learned yeah. that apparently YouTube subtitles can't be italicized. So the program I use, I think it's called Subtitle Edit. Yeah. Um, which is very... If people want to make subtitle videos, like if you know Japanese or something else and you want to do that, that program is super easy to use. But 
if you italicize in that program and then you want to use the YouTube videos rather than like burn the subtitles into the video, which I didn't do, um, you have to go in and then erase all the like code that italicizes it, which was not that much, but it was very annoying. Like, yes. ah, God damn it. Why YouTube? Why? Because YouTube are does... more captions than I they are subtitles, yeah. Which, which, yeah, it should allow for both. Yeah, you should but, be. It's like you to just make it so you can have your captions yeah. be italicized. Like that's it's yeah. a pretty standard format that I use. But. I did a fun translation exercise this week, Sean. Oh, cool. Um, which was so we one of my classes. This teacher, I guess, officially gets to call himself the cool teacher because he for our screening showed us a couple episodes of Naruto. Awesome and very so good. We were doing a week. We were talking about um, melodrama in in different forms of new media and and he made an argument that that i immediately jumped on and talked a bunch about about how much it fits in certain forms of anime particularly shonen anime absolutely yeah which absolutely does so he wanted yeah, i mean to that's use... like i think i said the word melodrama like a hundred times, times on the yes. g gundam podcast i mentioned yeah. that as well um it's it's a funny thing sean in our class discussions i wind up mentioning that i have a podcast pretty much every day in class uh-huh. and i sound like a douchebag but it's like it's where i do so much of my thinking mm-hmm. and and i don't know how not to like I don't know. I could just say I guess I was talking to a friend. Yeah, but... that's that's what I do. Okay. Like, if I'm going to, like, say something that's like, oh, yeah, Jonathan and I had this interesting conversation. I want to bring that up. I'll just say, I was talking to my friend the other day. And blah, yeah. Blah, blah, blah. yeah, yeah. Talking to my friend and some other friends online. Yeah. yeah. That's what it is. All right. But anyway, so so yeah, we were talking about that. And his favorite anime, this teacher, is uh, is Naruto. Or it's the one that, like, he grew up with or whatever, you know. Um, it's, it's it's very good. It's a long anime. Um, there's, there's a lot of it to love. Yeah. And uh, and so he that's was kind of his uh, goalpost to show us. And so he showed us the Gara versus Rock Lee fight from yeah. early in Naruto, it's which classic. is yeah, which I I had not seen, but I quickly like went up and looked on the comments and like that's a lot of people's like this is when I learned to love Naruto moment. Yeah. Um. And so, but there's a moment where in the official so he warned us. He said. You know, he said, you can watch it in Japanese or English, but there's one really important line that the subtitles just completely botch. So if you want to watch it in English, the dub actually does that moment better in terms of if you don't understand any Japanese, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. Um, I did not do that because I'm not, you couldn't pay me to watch that dub. Yeah, the dub's not very good. <laughs> but um, I did watch it in Japanese, and so, but it was a fun exercise because I'm watching these like three or four episodes and I'm like, well, what line is it going to be? And I'm like, most of these are okay. And I, it was so obvious when it came up because if you've seen that fight, it's the moment where, um, so Rock Lee is fighting Gara, um, who is like the, the big bad of this, this little arc. Mm-hmm. And, and Gara has his like sand powers and he's super evil. I, I, I take it we find out there's more to him later. Yes. But... <laughs> he, he, yeah, Gara gets Vegeta pretty hard. Yes. He's, yeah. He starts very evil and then eventually like, oh, he's kind of tortured inside and yeah. then he's your buddy. Gara, voiced by the same guy who does the Persona 3 protagonist. Yep. Which is awesome. We'll see him in a Gundam show and <laughs> not the too far future. Awesome. But in Anyway, so Rock Lee has this big moment where he does this giant fucking crazy attack where he unlocks the fifth gate of his chakras and then um, he, he, but he hasn't won. And so his, uh, his instructor, Guy Sensei. Yeah, Mike Guy. Which they, in those episodes, they do not call him Mike Guy. They just call him Guy Sensei. And then my instructor called him Mike Guy and I had to like interrupt and go like, wait, wait, wait. His name is Mike Guy? It's Might Guy. Like Might, might guy. like okay. strength. Oh. And Guy, like a dude. It's even better. Yes, okay, it's I love very it. good. Mike Jap- Guy is one of the best characters of the show. That's awesome. Anyway, Mike Guy jumps in to like protect his student. And he says in Japanese, Koitsuwa Aisubeki Ore no Taisetsu no na Bukada. Uh-huh. And the subtitles, because I noticed immediately how bad this translation was. It says, he is an important subordinate whom I care for. <laughs> Which is, I mean, it's not like to the letter inaccurate. 
But it is, it so does not get the meaning of that moment. Like, Yeah, it's very much a missing the forest for the trees kind of yes. translation. That is translating the words more or less what they are. But yeah. it's, you know, he's saying that he, he loves Rockley, yes. basically. Yeah, so, so like I did a little brief like card for all of my uh-huh. classmates so they could like get this. And I just showed like, here are what the kanji mean. A rough translation would be, he is my lovable indispensable subordinate. Viz, the manga, translates it as he's my lovable, precious protege, which I think is a pretty good yeah. alteration. Protege is a good word to use there. Yes. And then the English dub says, because he is my student and also because he is precious to me, which is a very good dub adaptation. Yeah. But like, he's an important subordinate, whom I happen to care for, is so wrong for that moment. <laughs> yeah. And so I just jumped on it and I spent like half an hour, like, like I, I looked up, I found the manga in Japanese and I'm like, just so I made sure I had all the kanji right. Um... I was like, okay, there it is. And then I'm explaining, like, Buka, like, it technically means support. It means, like, position lower. But, like, he's not, he's, it's, it's not like he's calling him his employee. So it's yeah, a, not it, a great word given to use. The, con- the context, yes. it's clear that he's not saying subordinate is not, like, the yeah. proper word to use there. Yeah, protege is actually a really good one. Student, something like that. But it's, it's, it was very funny. And I had to put a little diagram of that together. So I guess we both did a little bit of translation. Mine much lighter than yours. Mm. I did one sentence. Yeah, no, it took me a long time to do that yes. video because it was also me learning how the software, like finding the software, learning how it worked, and then being like, why didn't I cut this, some of this out? I should have maybe cut some of this out. But then once it got started, I would have had to redo all the subtitles I'd already done if I wanted to edit the video. So I'm like, well, yeah, fuck. Well, <laughs> I'm stuck with the 15 minutes, but I think it's good. Well, this is the time to do it. Uh, all right, let's talk about some stuff, Sean. Um, we'll go back and forth on stuff we've been doing. Mm-hmm. I just want to first, while we're on the topic of anime and manga and stuff like that, I reached a milestone reading One Piece this week, Sean. Mm-hmm. Last night, so I, as you guys know, I've been reading through the One Piece manga, and I, I hit last night chapter 519, which is not important to One Piece particularly. It's the middle of an arc where, Go- where, where Luffy... Where is- Goku shows up and is like, man, you sound a lot like my buddy Krillin. <laughs> Where Luffy is fighting these snake women. But it is important because, speaking of Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball ended at chapter 519. Mm -hmm. So I've officially hit the point of One Piece where One Piece goes longer than Dragon Ball by weeks of serialization in Jump. Yeah. And then it goes on for another 450 chapters minimum. Yeah, so it's going to go for at least two Dragon Balls. Yes, yes. You have to, it's like, yeah, it's like you have to use a different unit of measurement to figure out how long One Piece is. And I mean, it is kind of funny because like Dragon Ball is my measuring stick because it's the first manga I ever read. And it, until One Piece is the longest I've gone through and read the whole thing. And it's not particularly long compared to a lot of shonen manga anymore. Like all of it's the ones that came after it, like Naruto and Bleach and One Piece and just name your fucking, they they went longer than Dragon Ball. Yeah. But Dragon Ball is still sizable. So it just felt, and, and because One Piece kind of wears its Dragon Ball influences on its sleeves more than any of those others, I think, yeah, it um, it's, it just felt to me like, man, that's crazy. Because like, Ichiro Oda also, like, he started One Piece when he was like 17, or like the pilot chapter. I think mm-hmm. it started serialization when he was 20. He was a huge Toriyama fan. And like, that's crazy that like, he hit the point where he outdid his Bane influence and then went for double that. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Um... And yeah, so so One Piece is very good. I'm in an interesting part. I've just gotten past the part where the uh, Straw Hat Pirates get separated by uh, Kuma, and 
I, I take it they will be separated for like a hundred chapters because I, I know the rough outline of they reunite after the time jump, but I did not realize they get separated. Wait, you're that far because I, I knew there was a time jump in One Piece. You're not at the time jump yet? No, the time jump is volume 61. Holy shit. I, I assumed yeah. you had been through the time jump stuff forever. No, no, not at all. Because like Naruto does its time jump relatively early. Yeah. And then the Shippuden half is much longer. Mm-hmm. The same as like Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball Z. No, One Piece does it around volumes. I think 61 is the volume where they reunite at Sabaudi Archipelago. Holy shit. Yeah. That's crazy. I had just assumed, yeah, like I had assumed that like one third of the way or something into what had been aired already, you had. I I, I think that's why most people assume One Piece is going to go for like around 1,200 chapters because like the the, the time jump is probably the halfway point. Right, yeah. Because, like, it's something that I think if you haven't read One Piece, you might not realize is that it is actually a pretty densely plotted thing that has a lot of long-term, like, like Luffy and friends talked about, like, they, they made their heading to go to Fishman Island around chapter, like, 420. They still have not been there, and I know they won't get there until after the time jump. So there's things he seeds, like, hundreds of chapters in advance. And um, you know, like when when we when we all get to the point with One Piece where it's like, oh, it's clear that Oda is ready to wrap this up. That'll be three years before it's done. Like uh-huh. that's the kind of like time it will take to land the plane. But yeah, no, it's a uh, it's a long fucking manga, Sean. What if it just ends up being? Because I assume that Luffy has not at any point become the king of the pirates. What if? Him becoming king of the pirates is actually a halfway point. In the second half, of the season, it's just like it's totally different. It's, it's his long, slow reign. Yeah, it, it's it's like um, I've been poking at a little bit. I need to actually put some time into. It. I've been reading some of the Vinland Saga manga because I really love the anime. And the point after the anime, the manga is like totally different. Where for the first half, the main character is like this brutal violent kid who's like heavily traumatized and all this shit happens and then eventually he starts to make this move towards like pacifism but in a real way not in the like weird Gundam wing way and so it just turns it to a whole different genre basically and in my head that's what One Piece does it's just like <laughs> now it's about him ruling as king of the pirates and it's old Luffy with like a big fucking stretchy beard yes um yeah yeah, and then it ultimately ends with him getting executed like Gold Roger did at the very beginning of the series. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then runs. and then uh, Luffy Jr., like at the end of Dragon Ball GT, he has a vision of himself as a little Luffy finding a little Zoro. I don't know how that goes. <laughs> it, would, it would probably be someone other than Zoro, yeah. but yeah. I, I don't know. know. Yeah. Um, finding a little Buggy the Pirate. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's madness. One Piece is very long, but it's very good. And it's the funniest thing about reaching that point. Like, Dragon Ball feels longer to me, in part because I just know it better. But, like, Dragon Ball has a whole arc where it, like, ends and Goku grows up. And, like, One Piece yeah, cause, is... Yeah, because Dragon Ball goes from Goku being, like, 10 to Goku being, like, 40. So yeah. it's, it's a yeah. huge stretch of time by the time you get to, the, like, the epilogue of Dragon Ball Z. Right. But whereas where I am in One Piece, like... I would assume a couple of years have passed, but maybe not even that, like, because it's all for, pretty compressed, yeah. you know. But anyway, One Piece is very good. I'm very much enjoying the manga and trying to figure out if I, I'm doing the, the mental math in my head of how long it would take me to watch the anime if I ever wanted to do that. I figured... It's like five years. Or, yeah. You know, I, I was thinking about this, Sean. Like, one, I, I could just institute something where, like, I set aside 25 minutes a day and promise to do one episode of One Piece a day, and that would take me about three years to get to where we are now. Um, but that would take a lot of discipline. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. I, uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Um, what else have you been up to, Sean? Um, thinking of manga, actually, I finally got, so, since I'm nearing the end of the semester, 
I have now finished reading all the stuff I need to read to prepare for like teaching stuff. And I've read all these professional development books I needed to read because I'm a first year teacher and all this stuff. Because I have just been in this scenario where I have not had like the, this time I'd like to spend reading has been dedicated to work related stuff, which fucking sucks. Um, and so last week, basically, it's like, oh, wait, I can just now read whatever the fuck I want. And so in the course of like two days, I blew through all of Crossbone Gundam. Because I'd, nice. I'd been sitting on those for so long. I'd read like the first half of the first volume back when I got them forever ago. And then had to read fucking something. I forget what came up at that point, And had to read something else. And it was like, kind of fell off of it. And, and I think the first half, like the first volume is a lot of setting stuff up. So it's a little bit slower. But once you get into Crossbone Gundam, it's really fucking good. It's really fucking good. It's really fucking good. Crossbone Gundam needs to be an anime like yeah. stat. You could do it as an OVA. You could even do it as like maybe two or three movies, but just do it. Please. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's especially, I think the reason why I specifically would really love for it to be get an anime adaptation and probably like a unicorn Gundam route would be a good way to go with it for like kind of move a couple yeah. of movie sized OVAs is just like. Some of the action sequences in Crossman Gundam are really incredible. They it are has, really well plotted out and choreographed. It has one of my favorite moves in all of Gundam. And we're probably I'm probably gonna have to like edit all these Gundam conversations into our next weekly suit Gundam. We can just have them again. Yeah, we just have them again. But um it's where it's where um Kincaid, um, who is the the new name of Seabook from F ninety one, he de- so the way the Gundams work in that show or in that manga is that the cockpit, the the like core fighter, is like the wings and it yeah. like goes in at the center of it. And and so like it detaches from the body. It's not like it transforms like Zeta Gundam on and stuff. And he I if I remember correctly, he like detaches that and then he like sends the body in and like does this thing where he comes back into it and like crushes someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one of my favorite moves. There's there's, there's a lot a of great prolonged action, action sequence where because basically what Crossbone Gundam does, I think, is it feels bad that Seabook only got the one movie rather than getting getting his whole TV show. So they decided to make Seabook the coolest fucking character yes. in Gundam because all the rad shit in in Crossbone. Gundam like I like the protagonist Toby of fine but Kincaid slash Seabook is by far the coolest fucking dude because there is a prolonged sequence where he fights off three powerful mobile suits and in like the first section of the fight he's talk, taken off his guard and his the arms of his mobile suit are cut off and he's still holding them off without arms yes it's like it's... amazing it's just utterly incredible in the sense of just how like this this is just like reveling in the power of a former Gundam protagonist and how they yes. would be, you know. It feels like if we had had a Zeta Gundam that had a lot more Amuro fucking shit up on Earth that you know happens in the back half of Zeta, but you almost never see it. Right. It's like, you. Would, I imagine Amuro is doing the stuff that Seabook is doing. It's just ridiculous, and he's just utterly trouncing all these characters that think they're hot shit because they're getting the, given the latest, greatest mobile suits, and... Kid Kate's like, I don't care. I don't need arms. I will still take you out. We should probably just do a weekly suit Gundam on Crossbone Gundam because it sure. is that good. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and it's, I, I also just, all the pirate stuff in it and the way the mobile suit designs and the design of their ship, the, um, the mother mother vanguard mother vanguard yeah. oh it's great i love where they take seabook and cecilia the the main characters from um f91 and like they get a very good ending at the end of it yeah um it's and i like tobia as well i think it does a good job balancing like giving tobia his own story with all the kincaid stuff um there's it's it's so good yeah it's just it's it, it's really frustrating that there is no 
proper English language release. Um, yeah. So because you have to find use like fan translations if you want to, which are fine. I should yeah. say like I've read the scanlations and they're in for the original Crossbone Gundam. They're in very good quality. Um, and and you can go find those. They're they're by Zionic scanlations. Um, and they're very good. But because luckily it's only six volumes, so it's yeah. like it's like fans can translate it. Mm-hmm. It's not like One Piece. Your fans can't do One Piece. No, yeah, <laughs> that, that's, that's that's your full time job if you're translating yes. One Piece. Yeah, but you can do Crossbone Gundam, um, and yeah, and some of the sequel stuff is is I don't like it as much, but it's it's some of it's worth seeking yeah. out. I um, yeah, because I've ordered um, Skull Heart and the three volumes of the Steel Seven or whatever. Yeah, yeah. which that's all of the original stuff with Tobia. After that, it jumps forward and it's like a different. Yeah, series. that's the stuff that like when I I I, I want to just kind of finish out some of like the major Tobia stuff for the yeah. next couple of ones, and then Ghost and Dust and all that. Yeah. I, I think I'm not going to do. Yeah, but Tomino didn't have a hand after the original, but right. but you can very much feel Tomino's hand. I think in. Original crossbone gun. Yeah, it feels like it is. You can see what would have been potentially like a fifty episode TV show, and yeah. and the manga version you get is like taking all the major pivots in that story and condensing it into one yeah. like sequential thing, rather than having here's a bunch of episodes of just like the pirates doing pirate stuff and having kind of one off fights and stuff. Yeah, you can see there'd be I, space for that. If I think in a, a pinch show. you could even do it as one two hour movie. It would you would have to cut some good stuff, but like it's paced in such a way that it has this like clear beginning middle ending. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's honestly, it's not, it's just kind of baffling because it's like just sitting there for sunrise to make money off of. Because Crossbone Gundam is, my knowledge, very popular in Japan. Like, oh, yes. It's, it's, I mean, one of the reasons why it had been on my radar is just because it pops up basically in every Gundam video game yeah. I've played. They would Any, sell a, anything that's not one of the TV shows that shows up in a Gundam video game, I just assume must be like hugely popular because yeah. there's a huge amount of ancillary Gundam media and like 99% of it doesn't make it into any of the like audience facing, like yeah. main audience facing stuff. So that. I want to read Gundam Seed Ashtray. That is another one that I know is like really popular because yeah. that also is in a bunch of games. Um, so I'm I'm using my reading time to do some manga stuff, uh, and nice. it's good. Manga's good. Manga's awesome. I love manga. Manga was my first love when it comes to like Japanese media. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, uh, speaking of Japanese stuff, this is so Japanese. I've been yeah, playing. This is going to be a very Japanese heavy episode. <laughs> yeah, I've been playing a lot of Bayonetta. Mm-hmm. I talked a little bit about it last week, but I am now deep into Bayonetta 2. I'm about halfway through Bayonetta 2. I beat Bayonetta 1 this week. Uh, the Bayonetta games are the shit. I fucking love them. They are amazing. They are, of all the Platinum game stuff I've played, they're my favorite along with Nier Automata. Although Nier Automata, you have to put like a little asterisk by for being like the, the Yoko Taro experience. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> but um, although Bayonetta, also like clearly the more I play them, like very influential on the general build of um, Nier Automata, as different as they are as games. Yeah, yeah the combat clearly. Really is yes. founded in what they did with Bayonetta. Yeah, which which actually makes me excited to go back and play Nier again because I think I would get it more this time mm-hmm. and that would be fun. But the Bayonetta games are great. You know, I finished the first one and I think the first one has a couple of little teeny tiny signs of age and just some like kind of maybe rough difficulty spikes or some little things here and there. But by and large, like that game has aged so gracefully. It does not feel like it's 11 years old. It's very much like Vanquish. It feels like it could have been made at any time. And I love that those games are now packaged together on Xbox and PS4 because they're just, if you want a sampling of the Platinum Games experience, just buy that package. You'll be happy. Um, But Bayonetta 1's great. Bayonetta 2, so far, I think is even better. Um, Maybe I find the story like a tad less compelling, but I think the gameplay is, is one of those sequels where you start playing it and it's just like immediately it clicks like they've tightened everything up. 
they fixed a lot of little nagging things I had with it. Um, and it just it plays so good. It looks really good too. Bayonetta 2 was developed for the Wii U and then ported to the Switch. Those are the only two platforms it's on. But it, it looks phenomenal. And they just like one little change that they made is Bayonetta 1 is not a colorless game. It's not one of those like, you know, early or late 2000s, you know, brown. Yeah, it does, yeah, it does look like weird brown filters on the screen. But it is sometimes a little less colorful than I would like for a game like that. Mm-hmm. And Bayonetta 2 makes this choice where they make the color blue, the core like visual motif of the game. And it's not overwhelming. It's like everything is blue, but like her costumes, her guns are blue now. And she has a little more blue on her outfit. There's more sort of like water in the world. There's more sky, and it's just like immediately there's something about that that gives the game a little more of a visual identity and kind of an oomph to it that I really love. Um, Bayonetta's redesigned for Bayonetta 2 where she has like the short bobbed haircut and the new outfit is so fucking good. I love it to death. Um, they've tightened up the combat in a bunch of good little ways. They got rid of most of the quick time events that could insta-kill you if you didn't know what button to hit, which that is the thing that dates Bayonetta 1 the most, uh-huh. is, the, is the middle of a cutscene... Press X. Oh, shit, I wasn't holding my controller because I thought it was a cutscene. Go back through the menu. Uh-huh. <laughs> Try it again. Um, Bayonetta 2 does not do that. Um, I think the combat encounters are even better. Some of the boss fights are even better. It's an it Actually, at normal difficulty, it's easier. I had to pump it up to hard because hard on Bayonetta 2 feels like what normal was on Bayonetta 1. So like, if you're going to play those, just know that. Like Bayonetta 1, you have to play on normal and then you unlock hard. Bayonetta 2 has normal or hard and hard is like original Bayonetta. Um... So, but when you you bump it up, it feels just fine. Um, it like the collecting and the exploring is much better in Bayonetta two. Bayonetta one has a lot of like very cryptic. Like you you'll like go through the level and you'll miss a fight and you're like, what the hell? I looked everywhere and you just don't know where it was. You don't really feel that in Bayonetta two. It's much more like if you explore, you will find things, which is how I like these kind of games to be. Um, and it's just it's great. Uh, they're they're both phenomenal. You know, if you have a Switch, you can buy the pack and get both of them. If you have an Xbox or a PS4, you can at least get the first one. Um, but these games are so special and good, and I'm very much looking forward to Bayonetta three if they ever make it, um, because there there there's really nothing quite like them other than I assume like a Devil May Cry. But even then, Devil May Cry is not about a crazy um, BDSM mistress. You know, kicking demon ass. And Bayonetta just has so much. I mean, it's, personality. It's not a mistress, I guess, in, yeah. in Devil May Cry, but it's really not that far away. Okay, okay. Yeah, if you at least like Devil May Cry one and two, Dante are not kind of in that territory. But once you get to Devil May Cry three, he's basically there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's just you know because Bayonetta also I think is this really interesting line where you can kind of if you want to explain like the good and bad of fan service to people from like mm-hmm. Japan, Bayonetta I think falls on the good side of the line where it is having fun. It is with a wink and a nod. Yeah, Bayonetta is like very in control of her crazy sexuality and and like no one's getting one over on her or something like no right. one is like peeking through the keyhole it's 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 very fun and silly um you know and you get to do moves where like you take a demon and you shove it into a box and you whip it a bunch until it dies because that's who she is mm-hmm. you know it's uh, it's a great game and the music in those games oh my god so the first bayonetta i mean the, all the music's great but one thing they do is the first bayonetta game has um, two or three versions of the song Fly Me to the Moon, which is very funny coming on the heels of having just watched uh, Evangelion. Right. But it's got, yeah, Fly Me to the Moon as a battle song and then as the it's slow kind of ballad, like more like the Frank Sinatra version end credits song. And that was great because Fly Me to the Moon is an awesome song and I love having it redesigned as a big fight anthem for Bayonetta going around whipping demons into shape. Mm-hmm. You know, it's pretty yeah. great. Bayonetta 2, for its classic like piece of American pop music, does Moon River? 
okay. and makes Moon River into a battle song. And even if you're not going to play Bayonetta 2, go find that cover of Moon River and then imagine yourself playing, if, you're, you know, if, you're, if your point of reference is Devil May Cry, play that. <laughs> but with Moon River going uh-huh. in this crazy Japanese pop version, oh my god, Platinum, I love you so much. It's so crazy. Very good. Yeah, the Bayonetta games are great. Uh, and I also got uh, Metal Gear Rising Revengeance on sale this week on Xbox. So that's the next one I'll play. And, and I'm near completing my Platinum Games mm-hmm. playthrough of all their games. Yeah, so. then you just have to play the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game they made, Legend of Korra. Um, what are the other weird <laughs> licensed uh, games they made that most people don't like? God, I don't know. I, I, in terms of big ones, I do have to play Wonderful 101, yeah. which is getting its remaster soon. Although they did just send out a note to all their Kickstarter backers that if you had ordered the physical version, which I did, you're not getting that until late June. And they're, they're, I, it's a tough situation because it's not their fault. Yeah. The, the, the physical thing is because of COVID. The problem, though, is that if you ordered it digitally, you're getting that on May 7th. Oh, wow. And yeah. they are giving everyone who bought it physically a free Steam key digitally at that time. But I don't have a PC, and mm-hmm. a lot of people don't. So, like, it's nice. It's very nice of them. And I understand why they can't just give out free Switch and PS4 keys because they would have to pay for those. Steam uh-huh. keys you can generate for free if you're a developer. You cannot do that on PS4 and Switch because they have to take like whatever their percentage is. Yeah. But I would love if I could just like send them a note and be like, can I just like shift my... Like I'm not going to ask for my money back, but just like maybe don't send me the physical, but send me, you know, something like that. But um, so we'll see if they, they respond to that because there have been a lot of comments about it. Because mm-hmm. um, I think they're, it's not one of those Kickstarter things where they're operating in bad faith, I don't think. But no, it's, uh, yeah, it's, you know, extraordinary, extraordinary circumstances. Yes. It, like, everything is getting fucked up. Yeah, but like, you know, the fuck, I might have to do work again by June Platinum. Uh-huh. I'm at home playing games right now. Yeah, and, and video <laughs> games are going to start coming out in the middle of summer yes. for a brief period again. For, yes. So, yeah. Exactly. But anyway, um, all right, so I've been playing Bayonetta. you have any other stuff? Um, I've got a couple of other things. So, I guess, because I've got an anime I watched, and then I've also got Yakuza 5. So, I'll do a quick Yakuza 5 update. Um, I'm in the middle of the Haruka section, so I haven't I haven't kept my promise of wanting to do one protagonist for each podcast because I've been doing other stuff this week with work um, yeah. that's kept me busy. Um, but the Haruka stuff is crazy because it just basically becomes a totally different video game. Um, so for people who don't know or don't remember Haruka, Haruka is Kiryu's adoptive daughter um, who's like 10 or something like that in the first Yakuza game. At this point, she's like, I think, 17, 16 or 17 um, and She's ready to be a video game protagonist. Exactly. Um, and she and Kiryu are estranged for all these reasons. And um, she is basically pursuing her dream of becoming a pop idol in Japan. So he wants to become like a singer and dancer. And she is noticed. And you have a big, really good flashback sequence that kind of details how you go from her living in Okinawa with Kiryu at, by the end of the last game to where she is once you pick her up in Osaka. Um, and she's basically discovered by this um, like really powerful female manager who runs this talent agency named Mire Park, who's voiced by Romy Park. And every time they call her <laughs> Parkson, and it's just like, that's just the name of the voice actor. I have no idea if that was on purpose. She's not modeled after Romy Park, um, but that's just is what it is. It's weird. Um, Romy Park, also voice actor, we'll talk about it in a not-too-distant um, Weekly Sue Gundam. We're getting into the point where she becomes in everything. Exactly, yeah. Um, so, But yeah, so you have this really powerful kind of female executive who uh, finds Haruka, kind of spots her on the street, scouts her for this talent agency, uses her leverage to kind of push Kiryu out because Kiryu has 
his ties to the Yakuza, that if those get out, then Haruka's dreams of being sort of famous are going to be shot. So they kind of separate, and then after a couple of years, you pick up with Haruka in Osaka, in Sotenbori, um, which is the same location they then reuse for Yakuza 0, so that's very fun. Um, and so basically, obviously, Haruka's a high school girl. She's not going to go around beating the shit out of random strangers on the street like Kiryu, right? She's, she's a normal, like, nice, kind person. She's not going around beating up people. So you don't have that whole combat system is not a part of her gameplay at all. Instead, what they do is they come up with a series of different mini-games that you can do. Two of them are rhythm games. There's one that's, like, kind of a fully featured mini-game. Um, and then there's one that's this like dance battle mini game that's this very condensed version of a rhythm game um, that you do to like do all these side quests and you compete against other people you get special abilities with um, and and it's a lot of fun stuff of where I mean so far her story is completely disconnected from everything else which I actually really like that it's 100% I'm sure it's going to eventually intersect with the stuff that was set up in the other two protagonist stories but right now the stuff I'm in and I've been playing a lot with her is just entirely her just getting the ropes of what it means to be in the pop idol business. She's competing in this American Idol-esque show um, against other pop idols. And if you win, you get a guaranteed big um, album debut with a major label. Um, so she's competing in that. And it's a lot of, like, you. all your side missions are you going on, like, weird Japanese variety shows. And you having to pick the right dialogue response to this, like, funny Osakan host. Um, there's a whole side quest chain where there's like three different ones where you end up being the um scummy pair in a manzai comedy duo um of like traditional japanese comedy and it's you have to time the right responses um to keep up the routine and the routines are actually really fucking funny uh so they just found this way to kind of like gamify japanese variety television and for people who don't know anything about japanese pop idols it is very much feels like it is what that experience is because dancing and singing is like one small part of what that entails. A lot of it is you just going on random comedy shows and showing up and just like doing weird responses to things and you being on like a weird candid prank show. Like all that kind of stuff is a huge part of the Japanese kind of media circus around these, these personalities. Um, and so it's, they have like all these different weird mini games. They leverage mini games that already exist. So you go on, one, I just did this earlier today where they basically have you do the fishing mini game and you're on like a fishing show and you're just fishing in the river. Um, and I did very good at that, which felt good because I felt like Haruka would be very good at fishing, living right on the ocean in Okinawa for most of her life. And like, I feel like I represented you very well, Haruka. Um, and it's just, it's crazy how different it is. It's like it becomes so slow paced, so smaller scale in terms of the story a lot of it is just about Haruka struggling to make friends and maintain relationships um and her like dealing with these very kind of abusive um other pop idols that are in the same contest that are from a much more powerful talent agency and then like bullying her and stuff like that it's great it's so good like like Yakuza is the gift that just keeps on giving because it is so I mean this is like basically a whole other video game that they just put into this one video game yeah, God, when I'm done with all my Platinum Game stuff, Yakuza might need to be my next 
area of, of uh, travel because because every time you sit down and talk about it, it feels like you're pitching it directly to me and uh-huh. things I'd like to do in games. So this sounds fun. Really, the Yakuza team should make another Judge Eyes style spinoff, but yeah. just about being a pop idol in Kamurocho. Legitimately, yes. Like I think because there are some limitations that are frustrating. Of like they only have there's only like a couple of songs that you do with the rhythm game. Um, so it's like that gets too repetitive too early on. Um, and the dance battle stuff feels I like too segmented out. Like I can imagine a with like the modern Yakuza engine and how smooth they are transitioning against different modes and things, so that you're not like hitting a load screen when you have to go to this different um like combat section where there's no like weird cutscene that plays it's clearly hiding a load anything like that modern yakuza games like judgment just like go straight into stuff like that and i can imagine you just like wandering around on the street and then having some this like there's haruka sawamura the pop idol like i'm challenging to a dance battle and then just in the middle of the street you have like a quick 30 second to a minute long dance like really quick um rhythm mini game that you can level up and do all the stuff it's you can see the spaces where you could just turn this what they've done for Yakuza Five in her part of the story into whole its own other game, and I would love for them to do that because I think there's so much potential and there's just nothing like it. Like I've never played a game that is like this sort of like light pop idol simulator, which is basically what this section of Yakuza Five is. I think it'd be fucking awesome if they made their well, own hey, whole thing. Yakuza Seven—they're making the shift from you know like punching battles to old-style Dragon Quest RPG battles. Uh-huh. Yakuza Eight dance-offs. That's what I want. Like, like go for it. Yakuza—you you lose the so dance-off, you cut your pinky off. Too many games for Fresh. <laughs> oh, so yeah, so it's not even pop idol anymore. It's just a Yakuza big yes. Yakuza dude doing yeah. dance-offs in the street uh, rather yeah. than, than punching people. Sure, go for it. Sure. I don't know. Yeah. Like, like the Japanese government has really cracked down on fighting in the streets, so yes. this is how they have to work yeah, it they, out. They have outlawed punching entirely. Any punch <laughs> is just like you, you're jailed for life. So now all disputes must be settled through the the magic of dance. That sounds like the opening, like the narrator would be giving the... Yeah. So now all disputes yeah. must be settled. In the year 2025. <laughs> <laughs> all right. What's this anime you've been watching, Sean? Oh, uh, yes. The other... So I have an anime recommendation. Um, just because I, I watched this one 12-episode show in between Gundam Wing and afterward Gundam X. sort of a palate cleanser that I've been waiting for on for a while. Because it, it finished its airing um, late March. And it's called Azoken. Or keep your hands off the Azokin is the full title. Most people just refer to it as Azokin. It's on Crunchyroll. Um, Azokin basically means like film club. Um, it's the Azokin Kyubu, I think is the full name of what they're actually part of. Um, and it's the latest anime by the director Masaaki Yuasa, um, who the last thing he did, I think, was Devilman Crybaby. Before that, he did Ping Pong the Animation. He basically, since like the early 2000s, has done some of the most interesting, um, like, really kind of fascinating, visually fascinating, stylized TV anime that are very unique. Um, his probably most famous show is the Tatami Galaxy, if people have seen that. Um, so this is his newest thing. Um, it's based on a manga, and it's really good. It is really phenomenally good. Um, the basic premise is um, you're, it's set in this very strange, like, weird, um, eccentric city um, basically in contemporary Japan, but the aesthetic of it is like weird, like buildings on top of buildings. It's very kind of stylized in that way. Um, and it has three main characters who are all girls at this high school that are, in, um, two of them are in love with anime and one of them is in love with money. Um, and so the two that are in love with anime, one of them basically it takes on this sort of like directorial role. One of them is this animator that is like, like loves motion and 
capturing motion in drawings. And so they start, um, they want to start an anime club. They can't start an anime club because the anime club already exists. And the animator also, um, she's the daughter of these like famous actors and she's a model. And so her like rich, famous parents don't want her to be involved in weird otaku stuff like anime. So instead of making an anime club, they make the film club. But for the film club, they're making anime because anime are films. And so they kind of get around it that way. And that's why it's called Aizoken. Um, and the show is just basically about those girls um, creating these short anime projects for this club. Um, and it's the shows, the themes of the show are really just about the kind of struggles, the emotional and like practical struggles of creating a creative project like that with a small team, no budget. Um, and like, you know, the only thing you've really got going for you is talent and passion. Um, and that's what the show's about. And then the third character of the trio, the one that loves money is the best character and is just one of my favorite characters I've seen in anything for a while, um, which is Kanamori. And she is basically the producer and she's just the lady. She just gets shit done. Um, and she's always focused on like managing the budget, figuring out how to market and like profit off of the things they're making. They're, they have to like get around weird school guidelines and stuff like that around selling the things they make in the club outside of the school and all this kind of stuff. Um, and she's just super smart and is just scary. And she's like any like person she comes up against, whether it's the student council, whether it's the vice principal, she always has like a sharp comeback and is always like thinking she's two steps ahead of everybody else. And her character is fucking amazing. And I love her to death. Um, and it really is this just incredible show that is so gorgeously animated that is about gorgeous animation. So they get to sort of just like flex all the time with their animation team and do these really cool stylized segments where basically each episode has at least one set like prolonged sequence where it is the characters kind of imagining what they're trying to create and it's this very storybooky kind of a lot of the color comes out almost looks like um storyboards in some scenes and storybooks and others and and like colored pencils for the coloring and all this kind of stuff and then imagining these big elaborate animation sequences and then eventually them having to kind of make those a reality um and it's a show that i highly recommend i think it would take a lot for something to come out later in the year and be better than this like this is already if i made a, a top anime of 2020 this is like easily sitting at the top spot and is like the thing to beat because it is so what's the anime bullshit level that you would give us on the deck very low okay. um, almost none there's no <laughs> there's no like fan service kind of stuff the main characters are not sexualized in any way so if like that any of that kind of stuff is a huge turnoff to you like you can watch Azokin totally safe in the knowledge that it does not fuck around with that kind of stuff there is a i mean there is a bathhouse episode that is not sexualized in any way and it is it is a bathhouse episode that is actually about like communal bathing is a thing in japan and it's just a thing that people do and a lot of that episode is also about like there's a lot of cool animation stuff they do with water in that episode um so it is if yeah if you have a very low tolerance for anime bullshit um Azokin is going to be right up your alley um it does i would say that it has a slightly slow start so i think it's episode three is the first episode where the club is fully formed and they are like working on a project. So I think like those first two episodes are a little bit slow because the show is very light on like plot and character development. It's not really about like by the end of the show, the characters have not changed that much from what they're like at the beginning. 
Um, it is, so it's less about that kind of stuff and more about just the satisfaction in the creative process and then like the procedural process of making those creative ambitions a reality and the compromises between characters and all that kind of stuff. Like that's what the show is about. And so once you get into them, they're creating like this two minute teaser movie basically to like justify the club's existence. Once they get to that point in the story and the show has this like clear direction to point in, it just gets really, really good. So if people start watching it, I recommend giving it a couple of episodes if you feel it's a little slow early on, because that's how I felt at first. Um, but once they get everything put into place, it's so good. Um, and then also it has one of the best opening animations I've seen in years. It is so good um, because it is it is really heavily stylized kind of Technicolor stuff. And it's basically just the three main characters dancing to this song um, with like really smart cuts, really fluid animation um and it is it is just every single time i watched it i had to sit and like look at the screen throughout the entire opening animation sequence because it is so so good so yeah like if people want to watch um a modern show and want a recommendation on anything i've seen that is a heavy recommendation for me like i it is a show that has very little in terms of like emotional drama and i still was kind of choking up on the last episode just through like the feeling of accomplishment all the characters had of putting together what was like by far their biggest project and it then them nailing it at the end like it had this real emotional i had a really strong emotional reaction to it and being able to do that without having like characters die or there being like some huge misunderstanding that causes a big rift in the club it doesn't do any of that kind of stuff it is just about the procedure of creating the anime and I think in within the hands of almost any other like director and creative team other than Masaki Yuasa and the people he works with, I don't know if that like concept would work, but they are so talented that they're able to pull off I think what is a very difficult concept and make it one of the best shows I've seen in years. I'm so I just added it to my queue and I'm also looking this up because I'm fascinated by this, Sean. Um, the manga is getting its English translation starting in October mm-hmm. uh, by Dark Horse Comics. Uh, the anime's out on Crunchyroll, as you said. They also made a live-action movie yeah. that was supposed to debut in a couple weeks, but has been postponed due to COVID, um, that was preceded by a six-episode TV miniseries. So this story is having quite a moment over in Japan. Yeah, and it's interesting to me that, like, I'm very curious what the manga is like, because it is hard for me to imagine watching the show about animation not having it be animated. Like, right. I'm, sure the, I'm sure the manga must be really good, because it's getting all these adaptations and... and the anime is so good and like the characters are so vibrant again kanamori is like just i i like i think that character is going to be like uh a sort of like symbol in the anime fan community for a long time because she's popped yeah. so well so there probably also might be another season at some point because the manga's ongoing and everything yeah that'd be cool i mean honestly if it's a thing that they don't make another season i it's this season is so perfect and it yeah. feels so self-contained that i would not be bothered by there not being another season so that's another turnoff for people if you hate these 12 episode shows that like end on like weak story be like a manufactured conclusion because it's an adaptation of an ongoing thing azokin doesn't have that feeling at all like if you told me that this was a totally anime original production i would have believed you nice well i just threw it in my Crunchyroll queue uh and sean i have to tell you something i, I was meaning i was thinking of whether or not i was going to bring up have i told you i think i have free Crunchyroll for life somehow what so, it's a long story. Okay. But somehow, I have a uh, Crunchyroll and I'm not paying for it. And here's how it goes. Huh. So, Sean, um, while I was in Japan, yep. overseas, um, you know, I spent a lot of time on trains and stuff. 
and I was loading some different planes and all that. So I was loading some different things like Netflix. You know, you can download episodes. YouTube, you can make downloads. Crunchyroll does the Crunchyroll app does not let you download episodes. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, that's too bad. And I looked it up, and it said, well, Crunchyroll doesn't, but Verve V R V, which is another yeah. app. Um, by the same like media group, it's got Crunchy, it's got all of Crunchyroll, it's got all of like Rooster Teeth and Boomerang, yeah, and High Dive, which yeah. is another anime that um, streaming service that's on there. Yeah. Like, yeah, so it's and it's like it's like a little more than Crunchyroll, but it's not crazy, and it does downloads. So I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Well, I'll just get a free trial for Verve, um, and I will download my episodes there, and, and that worked. And I was watching Yu-Gi-Oh on the train in Japan. I was finishing up the Battle City episodes mm-hmm. anyway. So, um, but I did that, and then I was kind of done, and I'm like, okay, I'm not watching any other anime. Like, Crunchyroll's always been something I've kind of turned off and on. Um, and I'm like, and Crunchyroll had been turned off, but then I had started up Verve. And I do all of this through iTunes, through through Apple, because it's just, then I get one bill for everything. Right. You do it in-app. Um, and then if I want to check my subscriptions, I just go into iTunes, and it shows me, you know, here's what you have, and you can turn them on or off. It's very easy. So anyway, with Verve, I think I had had it once, paid for it one month, and then I'm like, okay, I'm not really using it. I'll turn that off if I need to turn it back. I can but then a couple weeks ago I wanted to check if they had something on Crunchyroll so I open up Verve and I'm because it was just the app that was on my phone and I'm looking at it I'm like okay and I play it I'm like wait how is this playing and how is it playing without ads this is this is weird and I go and like check my account it says you have premium I'm like oh fuck I must have forgot to turn it off so it says check your account in iTunes I'm like okay and I go and like iTunes says this is off like this is weird and I'm like Okay, and then I check Verve on the on the web browser. I'm like, they don't have any payment info from me. They have none. They they, mm-hmm. they only have my email address, and and it's hooked to iTunes. Right. iTunes is not charging me. I check my Apple receipts. Apple has not charged me, and I check my bank statements. And it's just in perpetuity. It tells me you have premium. If you want to turn it off, go to iTunes. I go to iTunes. Verve is turned off. I'm not getting charged. I think I have free Crunchyroll for life. Wow, that's. Or until they fix the glitch. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. Or like some somebody at some like tech company sees like a one where there should be a zero and is like, oops. Click. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I don't. It's very weird. That's great though. That's, that's great. Awesome. I, yeah. I'm not gonna say no. I guess it's all fucking owned by like Time Warner or something. Fuck them. Yeah, yeah. They're not gonna miss your one sub. It is their mistake. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, I, it's like I'm not... It feels weird because I mean, it feels like I've ripped someone off, but this was not... I did not yeah. try to rip anyone off. To be fair, I'm pretty sure that like you couldn't pay the money if you wanted to because they just assume you have a subscription. There's no, like, yeah. let me send you money anyways. Yeah, so that's why I when you were talking about that, I opened up Verve and added it to my queue because I'm like, I've got it for free. Well, shit. All right. It's very good. Yeah. Um, it, it's worth a, a paying for a subscription, but, you know, if you don't have to pay for a subscription, it's definitely still worth that. All right. Our final piece of stuff today on the longest stuff segment I think we've ever done uh, is Streets of Rage 4, which came out this week, and I have been playing um, on the Nintendo Switch. It's also on Xbox. It's on PS4. It's on PC. I learned after I bought it on Switch that it is on Xbox Game Pass, and then I was kicking myself because mm-hmm. I, I currently have Game Pass, and I didn't have to pay for it, but I did. But that's okay. It's kind of the opposite of the Verve thing, uh-huh. but that's okay. Uh, I mean, honestly, Sean, I was so excited for Streets of Rage 4 that I, the morning it came out, I grabbed my Switch. I didn't even really look at the price. I'm just like, I don't, I don't care. Just buy it. And it was like mm-hmm. 20 bucks. So, you know, luckily they didn't rip me off and it wasn't a $90 game. Because uh-huh. that would have been bad. But um, still might have been worth it. Because Streets of Rage 4 is 
goddamn phenomenal. Um, Streets of Rage, if you don't know, was a beat 'em up, you know, brawling series from the Genesis days. It was three games: Streets of Rage one, two, three. Mm-hmm. Two is the best one, but they're yeah. all fun. Um, and you know, they have the classic sound soundtracks by Yuzo Koshiro, which you talked about on our top ten video game soundtracks list. Yep. It wasn't in your top ten, but it was one of our honorable mentions. Yeah. Because they have some of the best music in game history. And it's the best use of the Yamaha synthesizer on the Sega Genesis. So it yeah. has a, it's very near and dear to my heart as a soundtrack because it sounds fucking dirty in the best way possible. It's so good. And, and it fits the aesthetic. Because Streets of Rage is a game series about going out in the streets and working out your rage by beating up everything and everyone in sight, including yeah. your co-op partners, because there is no such thing as friendly fire in the world of Streets of Rage. You just hit everything. So it is this old school, you know, co-op beat-em-up series in the vein of like Double Dragon or something like that. Yeah, you walk from the left of the screen to the right of the screen and punch everything in your way. Yes, yeah. and I, I think a lot of people would agree Streets of Rage is the best of those. If yeah. for no other reason than you get to listen to Yuzo Koshiro and that Yamaha synthesizer yeah. while you're doing it. Nice, Big, well animated sprites, yep. all that, all that kind of stuff. Uh, great graphics, awesome characters. You know, they, they're they're very thin on story, but the characters have a lot of personality and are fun. My favorite was always Max from Streets of Rage Two, who was this just big guy who had the best back hit, where he would just like raise his fist, go boom, like yeah. he's in a fucking kung fu movie. It's great. Yeah, like Batman loved to do that in the animated series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's Streets of Rage is awesome, and a couple like Streets of Rage Four has been in development for a while. I feel like we learned about it back in like 2018, mm-hmm. and it is. Um, I forget which developer wound up doing it, but it's... I know it's the same developer that did the remake of Wonder Boy um, and the Dragon's Trap or whatever it was called for for Switch and it came to other systems as well with that really beautiful hand-drawn art style. And this is the same thing. So it's it's a new Streets of Rage game, but it is not trying to replicate the like old-school pixel art graphics. It is very much a new... It it looks like hand-drawn. It looks like kind of a great Saturday morning cartoon. But it is otherwise very faithful to what Streets of Rage is. You still move left to right, and you beat the shit out of people. Um, They've made some really cool mechanical tweaks and improvements. I think the best one is... So Streets of Rage always has had a special move that you would would use. And in Streets of Rage 1, it was really awful. It was like this animation that would play from off screen. It would take half your health bar, and it would do this like really like... Like Adams was, he would call a police car that would send in like bazookas. And then in Streets of Rage 2, they made it a move that was just part of your arsenal but it would take a little bit of your health and i think that's how it stayed for streets of rage 3 in 4 it's it's kind of like it was in 2 and 3 where you have it's like an extra cool punch or something you can do and what it'll do is it'll lower your health bar but what it'll do is it'll leave like this green portion and if you Mm -hmm. then hit enemies without getting hit you can refill the health you lost when you do your special yeah so So, it's it's basically that's how bloodborne works yeah yeah it encourages you to use the move and then be aggressive after you use the move yes so it's it's that's and that is honestly like a it sounds small but it's a transformative awesome streets of rage thing that Mm -hmm. they've added they also added a really cool what they call a star move where you can collect these stars on the level and then do a combo like you hit x and a together or you can map it to just like the r button and you do this big super move and they're all really flashy and cool like one of the characters who's kind of like the replacement for max is this big guy who looks like a cyborg well i mean he is a cyborg he's got big cyborg arms and he does this move where he like jets out like a giant beam in both directions and it just knocks out everyone on screen and stuff like that so but you only get a couple of those per level and if you don't use them you get extra points at the end because it's a you know, Streets of Rage is a game you cannot get rid of the score from. The score is like too important to uh-huh. like this game. Um, 
Yeah, and and so the gameplay is kind of what you remember. It's it's. I, I went back and played a little bit of two and three, and it's actually the characters move a little bit slower in Streets of Rage four. Like it's a little slower and more deliberate, but I think that actually kind of helps. Mm-hmm. Um, there are there are times when there's more enemies on screen as well because it's like a more modern game. Um, but yeah, it plays beautifully. Like it plays the way you remember Streets of Rage in like the best moments playing, but like mm-hmm. even better than that. Um, and it is 12 stages long. The stages are amazing. It starts, stage one starts with a little homage to Streets of Rage 2. Like it's sort of the same thing. And then there is a moment where it kind of takes a right turn and is something else. And then none of the rest of it, to my knowledge, is a, is a remake, at least in my memory, is a remake of anything from other Streets of Rage games. There's certainly nods. There's like a boss that or two that come back in a new form. Um, but it is uh, all new game. All of the stages like blend into each other so beautifully. Like they're very... Um, each one is very distinct from the other, but like the way like this one leads into this one feels like you are moving kind of through a world. Uh, the plot is very big, dumb Saturday morning cartoon silly, where you are trying to stop Mr. X and Mr. Mr. Y from creating having a rock concert where the sound waves will take over the brains of everyone in the city. Of course, ends in a fight on a big airplane, and then you're in a big estate. It's it's so good. I, Sean, had so much fun playing through this game. I've played it through in completion once, and I'm doing another playthrough now because I'm going to. It's the kind of game you would play through several times. Yeah. And uh, the first big full playthrough I did was with my brother when he got back from Japan. We did it co op. And he doesn't even. He's always. I've always tried to make him play Streets of Rage with me, and he doesn't think it's very fun. I think I got him into it with this one because it's just that good. And we played through the whole thing, and it was a blast. And yes, you can still accidentally hit your partner, and it is crazy, and you will get mad at each other, and you will laugh. And there was one time when he was the only other figure on screen, and I was just not thinking because I was in the mode of punch everything in sight. And I just fucking hammered on him with like this massive combo. And then he was on the ground, and then I'm like, wait, that was you? And he's like, yeah, that was me. I'm like, why didn't she say? anything it's like i was hitting you for like 20 seconds but anyway it is so so great um there are five main characters to play as there's adam and blaze who were in most of the streets of rage games and there are no there's there's what's his name axel and blaze sorry adam is also in several of them so those three are returning characters and then you have two new characters cherry and floyd cherry is kind of like skater from streets of rage 2 She's got a big guitar that she hits people with. Cherry is awesome. She is so fun to play as, but she's like the kind of light, fast member of the group. And then Floyd is sort of like Max, except he's a big cyborg. And I swear to God, one of his animations is an homage to Frankie in One Piece, because he just does Frankie's like sideways move and all this stuff. Um, But he's great. So those two new characters are honestly maybe two of my favorites to play with. They're really, really fun. And those are the five main ones. But you can also unlock by playing the game... Every single character from the original three games um, in their original like Genesis 16-bit form and the different versions of them. So like if you're playing Streets of Rage 1 Adam, he does his old school special that I talked about Mm -hmm. where he calls the police car and it sends all these bazookas at you and stuff like that. So you can unlock all of them. You can play the game. Um, The the main version of the game is really beautiful to look at. There's so much great detail. It's so fun to look like behind you in the background of the scenes. There's so much fun stuff going on. But you can also apply like kind of a pixel filter so it sort of looks like a Genesis game. You can add a CRT filter. You can do all of that. And then, of course, the music is the star of the show. They've got a big team of composers. A lot of people from the Genesis sound team days, including Yuzo Koshiro. Um, or, 
How do, yeah, Yuzo Koshiro. Yuzo Koshiro. Yeah. I was sure it was Yozu or Yuzo, but Yuzo Koshiro did the main theme and several other big pieces for it. Um, Yoko Shimamura did one piece that absolutely slaps. Um, the main composer is a guy named Olivier de Vigier. It's a French name, um, so I'm sorry I'm having trouble remembering it. I should probably just look it up. Um, but yeah, Oli- yeah, Oliver de Vigier. I don't know how to say that in French, but yes. Um, French is harder to pronounce than Japanese. Fun fact. If you don't know how to pronounce it, that is definitely true. <laughs> yes. Um, but anyway, he's the main composer, and all of his tracks are great as well. Um, but it's got um, um, lots and lots of people that, uh, and names you will recognize from the Genesis days. Uh, and the soundtrack is, like, the soundtrack's out. You can get it on iTunes and Spotify and stuff. Um, and it's two hours. So there's two hours of music in wow. this game, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, and, like, like n- not just each stage has music, but each stage has multiple pieces that go into it for the different phases. And it is... Exactly what you would want. Um, it, it plays so well. It is so purely fun. It's honestly my favorite game I've played this year behind Ori and the Will of the Wisps. I absolutely love it. I cannot wait to play more of it. I'm currently doing kind of a hard mode run through and it is very hard, but it is very rewarding. Um, yeah, I did not know I needed a new beat em up game in my life in 2020, but especially at a time when I'm working out a lot of aggression at the world. Uh, Streets of Rage is exactly what we need. You know, the second mm-hmm. level, you are arrested and go to jail, and you beat up all the inmates, and then you beat yourself out of the the cell by just punching at the cell door. You get out there, and then the cops are in the middle of the hall beating up an inmate, and you beat up them, and then the inmates get out, and the rest of that level is there's cops, inmates, and you, and everyone's just fighting each other, and you can just beat up everyone on screen or let them fight each other. Um, and it is, you know, it really helps you work out your aggression against the state in this uh, period of time. Nice. Streets of Rage 4 is so good. Yeah. Further reiterating your need to play the Yakuza games. Yeah. Because the Yakuza games have... Are, I said this before, that they basically kind of feel like this Super Mario 64 for beat-em-ups and that they, like, put them in 3D and make them huge and, like, oh, a lot I of love story that. and kind of stuff. So Yeah. Yeah. You should... Yeah. Because um, you... I forget if you like those games or just the music. Um, I, I like Streets of Rage. Like, I'm not a huge... Like, it's that kind of thing of where, like, I can't go back and play them anymore. Okay. Because, so it's like, I, I, I might pick up Streets of Rage 4 on, like, a sale. Yeah. But, like, the... There is a beautiful simplicity to those kinds of side-scrolling brawlers. But they are also very simplistic. And yes. so it's like, every time I go back and try to play one of those, I play, like, two levels. And I'm like, I think I got what I need out of it. Yeah. Um, and, and I understand yeah. that, because that's generally my experience, unless I kind of, like, make myself sit down. And I can definitely have fun doing a full playthrough of particularly two, because that's the best of the original three. But, like, four is four is better. Like, it is definitely an update that, like, it keeps all the stuff you loved, but I think it adds just, just enough, like, strategy and momentum to it to, like, make it feel... Like, I did not ever... I have not had the, the, the feeling of, like, this is boring and I need to put this down, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I would really highly recommend it. It's surprising how, like, fresh it feels. Yeah, like, my memory of the Streets of Rage games are, like... They were the... For back in the day, when video game rentals were a thing, they were the perfect rent-a-video game sure. game. Because yeah. it was, like... I feel like if I owned it, the mystic, like the mystical quality of those games, because they are like arcade games by their heart. Like Streets of Rage yes. is not a, necessarily an arcade franchise by its heart, but the genre is a very arcade first genre. Um, and there's something about like if you own the game, there's something about the magic of you have to keep on putting in quarters, or you can only play this for so long. That like pressure, I think, makes the simple game design, or at least back in the day for me, that's what really made it work. Um, but yeah, like I, I'll definitely check out Streets of Rage 4 when it's on a sale. Yeah. If for nothing else, the art and yeah. the music is worth looking at. I mean, I'll definitely get the, 
you know listen to the soundtrack on Spotify. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's great. Um, and they have different modes. So like the main mode, you know, will unlike the, the original games were very arcade style in that you only had one set of continues and yeah. it went through the whole game. So it was. Like, without save states, you have to get good at it to, like, get through it. Mm-hmm. Um, this game is sort of a normal save system where if you die, it sends you back just to the beginning of the stage. But when you beat the game, you do unlock an arcade mode that's like the original games if you want to grind yourself through that. So it's got, it's very feature-rich. It's got everything you could want. Um, it's even got, a la Doom 2016, like, you can find little retro stages within the stages nice. where you do a fight. And I have not found those yet. I have not gone through and tried to find those. But um, it's like you, you go through an alleyway and you get, like, a, a boss screen or something is what I've seen. So they it's a labor of love. It's, it's honestly very analogous to, like, Doom 2016 to Doom mm-hmm. um, in that sense, I feel like. So, or yeah. like Sonic Mania to the old Sonic games. Absolutely. Yeah. Sonic Mania is a good one as well. Um, we're, we're in a good time for retro revivals. Mm-hmm. And Streets of Rage 4 is one of those. It sounded unlikely, but it is great. And, uh, you know, I think it's the, game, it's the game we need right now. Yeah. Eventually, the next one up, someone needs to make Triple Dragon. <laughs> the real Double Dragon 2. I mean, we keep hearing they're making that fucking Battletoads game. But we haven't seen anything it's about true, that in forever. true, yeah. Who knows? Maybe, maybe that's what Microsoft will show off. That's what we're going to yeah. find out. This is their big next-gen... Battletoads for the Xbox Series X exclusive. It's 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 the Super Mario 64 of Battletoads. It's gone 3D, open world. The Battletoads have is, all of New York open to them. Is there a 3D Battletoads game? I'm going to look this up. Should I, I, okay, I'm I gonna, have this mental image of the Battletoads in 3D that I want to know if that's a nightmare I had or that's a video game that exists. Why don't I move on to the news? Yeah, go ahead. And I'll give us the first piece of news. You look up that. All right, news. What's going on in the news, Jonathan? Well, I'll tell you, Sean. Um, this week, we learned about the new Assassin's Creed game. Assassin's Creed Valhalla was announced for holiday 2020. It will be coming out on PS4 and Xbox One, but also the PS5 and the Xbox Series X. So we have our first big next-gen, cross-gen game confirmed. It will also be coming out on PC and Stadia if you just want to torture yourself. It is, as the title suggests, the Assassin's Creed Viking game we've all wanted. Um, it, this is an Ubisoft Montreal team uh, led by Ashraf Ismail, who that's the same team that developed Black Flag and Origins, which is the two Assassin's Creed I've played to completion, and I really like what that team does. It has a male or female protagonist, a la uh, Odyssey, which was the last game. Continues on sort of the RPG path they've been doing since Origins. It's got choices and dialogue trees, customization and romance options and all that. Uh, and in a really interesting detail, it will support Xbox's smart delivery system. So you only need to buy one copy for Xbox and it'll give you on both the one and the series X, which is a good sign for that being something that maybe we'll get in this generation. Um, but that's all the details we have on Assassin's Creed Valhalla so far. There was a five minute trailer that, uh, ended with a very good moment with the Assassin's Blade, I thought, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, what do, you, what do you think, Sean? Well, first, I, I have to uh, say that there is unfortunately no 3D Battletoads game. Oh, I say unfortunately. Um, so that is just a nightmare I had at some point. There are, however, like more Battletoads games than you would expect. Jonathan, how many, including the um, new one that there is in development, how many Battletoads games do you think there are? I thought there were only two. I thought there was the NES game and this new one. So, okay, this is a little bit unfair because some of these are ports, but back in the day, ports were a different... So, like, a Game Boy version of Battletoads, that's a different fucking video game. Exactly. Including the one that's currently in development, there are eight Battletoads games. That's too many. There is the original Battletoads that we all know and some of us love. Um, there's Battletoads, an LCD game that was released by Tiger Electronics, so a little watch shit game. So there's that for Battletoads. I don't know if that counts. It's a Battletoads game. It's, that is a video game called Battletoads that is licensed by the Battletoads people. 
okay. um, that features the Battletoads. Um, there's Battletoads for the Game Boy, a spin-off of the original NES game. Um, despite having the same box art and title as the original NES release, it is an entirely different game from the NES version. So apparently it is actually literally a totally different game. Um, then there's Battletoads and Battle Maniacs, which is the Super Nintendo one. There's Battletoads and Ragnarok's World, a 1993 port of the original game made by Rare for the Game Boy. So, so there's Battletoads on the Game Boy, which is its own game. And then Rare made a port of the NES Battletoads game on Game Boy, which is called Battletoads in Ragnarok's World. Um, okay. Then there's Battletoads slash Double Dragon, a crossover with the characters from the Double Dragon series. And this is what it says of the Wikipedia title after that sentence. With Liberties Taken. Which is a very good like Wikipedia way of couching the idea that Double Dragon and Battletoads are um, characters that exist together. Um, and then there's Battletoads Arcade, which is an arcade game released in 1994, also known as Super Battletoads. Um, and this has voiceovers and that kind of stuff. Which I think in my head, that was the one that I thought was 3D, but it's not. And then you have Battletoads, which is the name of the upcoming new Battletoads game. Which makes eight Battletoads video games. What the fuck has humanity been doing for the last 20 years? I don't know, but this is like Assassin's Creed 15 or something. Yes. Sorry. So that's Battletoads okay. done. Back to Assassin's Creed Valhalla. What yeah. do you think, Sean? Um, like, you know, Ubisoft, um, like, CG Assassin's Creed trailers are always fucking great. Like, they're always just very fun. The one for Assassin's Creed Revelations in particular, I remember being great. Because that's I... one of, like, Ezio, like... On like basically walking the plank on this like big tower into a cliff, and he has flashbacks and stuff. Yeah, I was watching this trailer with my brother, and at some point he said, "What does this have to do with assassins? There's no hoods or anything." And then, and then like five seconds later, he stabs the guy with the blade, and I go, "That's the Assassin's Creed thing." And he's like, "Oh, okay." Yeah, I mean, you know, asking what does this have to do with Assassin's Creed is basically what you should be asking since like Assassin's Creed Four, yes. where the protagonist of Assassin's Creed Four. Finds a dead assassin, takes his gear, and just like stumbles into this assassin's Templar stuff. But I don't think is ever actually in the assassin's order. Like he's just sort of associated with them vaguely because he's wearing their shit. It's Ottawale is the guy who's actually the assassin, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah. So you know, Assassin's Creed. I mean, since Origins is basically almost a different franchise in terms of the gameplay. Right. Um. Which and yeah, they basically said this is. You know, the third uh, from Origins, Odyssey, now to Valhalla. It's the third in, like, this style of Assassin's Creed game. They're doubling down on some of the RPG stuff, which I think is the right choice. Um, and the setting just is very cool. You know, the yeah. kind of, like, Norman invasion stuff. You playing as a Viking. Um, and there was a lot of attention paid in that trailer to show that it's, like, Vikings were not just people that went around murdering for fun. And that's just, like, what they were, which is, sub like, the very, like, generic pop culture depiction of vikings you know it's not like big horns in your helmet and all that shit we're they're, not gonna have a rape and pillage minigame in this yeah exactly right. they were a culture of people that happened to you know partially because they lived in shitty places that were mostly frozen for most of the year and that kind of stuff they went and took over other people's lands and all that kind of stuff but they you know have families they care about people like all that kind of stuff they have their own rich culture and history um and that's the, i mean that's the stuff that assassin's creed has always been best at and what i've enjoyed most from the franchise it's my favorite stuff from origins is how in the weeds they get over the egyptian culture and the way they were con conflicting with the roman stuff that was happening and then the romans basically having taken over um and then the greeks also being in there all that kind of stuff going back to Assassin's creed one has been the best stuff in this franchise and you know vikings is a great setting i'm 
we've known that that's been the setting for like three years because every Assassin's Creed game leaks forever in advance. Yes. Um, so it's not like a surprise that, oh my God, Viking Assassin's Creed, but it is very cool to see it like actualized. And then there you get a brief glimpse of a mysterious figure that is presumably Odin or like an Odin-esque thing. Maybe they'll have some sci-fi Odin bullshit. Yeah. Just go full too human with it. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of honestly hope they continue with the trend they've done with a little bit in Origins. And though I didn't play Odyssey, I know there was a lot more of like the Minotaurs and Gorgons and shit like that and pulling more like supernatural stuff. I think finding ways to blend the natural historicism of Assassin's Creed with like the fantastical, I think that is a cool space. And yes. I hope there's a lot of cool material from Norse mythology you could pull in and, and kind of play with that. So Yeah, I mean, Assassin's Creed has essentially gone from being a series with, you know, a continuity and a house style to being a big playground for Ubisoft's very talented developers yeah. to kind of do whatever they want. Like, like take big swings and, you know, like, you know, most franchises you would not say Odyssey and Assassin's Creed 2 are in the same series. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, and, and I think that's cool because you get, they because Ubisoft, this kind of lets them have their cake and eat it too because they get the brand name, which means they get the sales, but their developers also don't have to like get bored making the same game every two years. Mm-hmm. And that shows in the work. Like, like I did not love Origins, but I thought it had a lot of phenomenal stuff in it. Odyssey got rave reviews. I, I still have not played that. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll give it a look if I can get it cheap before this one just to see some of it. But like, this looks great. And, you know, the last time Assassin's Creed launched with new systems, we got AC4. Yeah, which, which is the best Assassin's Creed. It is. Yeah. And uh, this is exciting. I mean, so, Sean, let's talk about that half of it. Yeah. This will be the first big cross-gen game. Um, well, not the first one, but it's the first one we know about. Yes, um, from, yeah, from a third-party yeah. studio. Yes. yes. I mean, Call of Duty will be as well. They just haven't confirmed it yet. Yeah, um, well, yeah. Activision will do their thing that they always do at some point in the summer. They're like, here's yes. the Call of Duty game. It's going to be like a Black Ops reboot because that also has been leaked. So, yeah. you know. But, but yes. Yeah. So that presumably will be as well. Um, I was really heartened to see that, this, um, that Xbox's smart delivery system, which to recap is the system by which... Um, at least for Xbox Game Studios games and then any third-party developers who take advantage of it, you just buy the Xbox version and it plays either way. So like... Yeah, so you buy one version of the game and if you own the Xbox One, you'll be playing whatever version of the game runs on the Xbox One. If you own a Series X, you'll it will run whatever version of the game plays on Series X without yeah. you having to buy discrete versions for this console. Which was what we had to do last generation. Yeah. Um, or like Assassin's Creed 4 did like a, if you bought the 360 or PS3 version you can have like a code that makes it cheaper, like an yeah. upgrade thing. Slightly. Like I don't think it was that much cheaper but yeah. it was there. But yeah, they, a bunch of, yeah. last time around a bunch of publishers had like weird individual upgrade paths that they yeah. did. But yeah. Well, so like to recap, just to make it clear, with Assassin's Creed 4, if you wanted to play it on 360 and then later get on one you would have to buy two copies yeah this is saying just one copy we don't know if ps5 will be supporting anything like that i mean we know the ps4 version will probably work on the ps5 but we don't know if it'll have the the enhancements because they will be discrete versions but this is um heartening because i remember sean when when they announced the smart delivery thing i think on this podcast you said this we'll know if this works if like ubisoft does it yeah and ubisoft okay there we go that's a really good sign it tells me that if sony has a similar plan in mind which they should because this is awesome that they will support for sony as well and if so now we know ubisoft is doing it for this and we know cd project red is doing it for cyberpunk Cyberpunk. and that's awesome because i love the idea that this fall i could just buy cyberpunk and assassin's creed on my xbox one 
and play them. And when the Series X comes out, I don't have to worry. I just know they will be the better version. Yeah. And presumably, hopefully, Sony does something like that. Same for PS4. That would be really great for all gamers everywhere. Yeah, um, just to like not have the weird bullshit yeah. around console switches that we normally yes. have. Yeah. And kudos to Xbox for kind of getting that out there early and clearly working with developers to like put a, a flag down on it yeah. because that that helps. Um, so another way the, this this generation sounds like exciting. To mm-hmm. me. Yeah, and I'm excited to see what they can do with this because Assassin's Creed Origins and Odyssey are famously gorgeous games yes. that very much push the edge of the existing hardware and I'm very excited to see what they can do with this next one because Black Flag was not necessarily the biggest difference in the world PS3 to PS4 but it's definitely noticeable when you look at it and oh, yeah. uh-huh. Black Flag was a gorgeous game um, and I'm assuming this will be as well so I'm really excited to see what they can do uh, and hopefully the loading screens will be short enough that you only can run like two steps with the assassin before he has to move on uh-huh. yeah they should just like artificially prolong it just for Assassin's Creed to see yeah just get a run around and yes. jump although I mean they broke those screens for me when you couldn't toggle weapons and have him just go with the hidden blade all the time just flip yeah. that out over and over again I think there's like Brotherhood or something you, could, you couldn't do that anymore and I was like well now I don't like these loading screens you took out my favorite part of them yes so Assassin's Creed Valhalla I, and I'm excited to kind of see that um, you know we're now we're hearing about next gen games yes and, and notably for Assassin's Creed Valhalla, there's, I think, there's some, like, ridiculous 15 studios working on it, whatever, it's Ubisoft model. It is 15 is the yeah. number. But the core team is the team from 4 that then went to Origins that went, then went to this, which yes. those are, 4 and Origins um, are my two favorite Assassin's Creed games. So yeah. that makes me even more excited um, than knowing this. like, okay, this is... Whatever it means for a studio Ubisoft to be a, a discrete individual studio, this is that studio making this yes. game, right? Yeah, no, and that's, I mean, that's why I bought Origins, was it was the next Ashraf Ismail team yeah. game. And uh, I was not, uh, there were some things I didn't love about that game, but I sure, certainly wasn't disappointed. And I'm definitely excited for this one. So, good stuff. The trailer, as we said, is fun. And we will see gameplay this week, because mm-hmm. here's our next news item, is Xbox is giving us our first look at Series X games on May 7th via a live stream at, I think, like 11 a.m. PT. Uh, it will be focused on third-party titles, including the gameplay reveal of Valhalla. Xbox Game Studios games, so first-party games, will be revealed over the summer, presumably in the E3 slot. But this will be, one way or another, our first look at footage from next-gen games. And I, you and I have both been asking for us mm-hmm. for this. It's the end of the drought, at least a little bit. I'm excited for this. Yeah, I mean, the main thing I'm curious about is... Is there going to be anything from a third-party studio that is exclusive to next-generation consoles and not a cross-generation launch? Because that will be... Like, because... When they when they said that it was only going to be third parties, that's when I kind of internally dialed my expectations back a little bit, just in terms of... I think there's a reasonable chance that I think people are going to come away from what is shown in this event kind of disappointed because it's going to be Assassin's Creed Valhalla that looks like you know the the pc version of the game running on ultra settings which yeah. is i think what most cross-generation games are going to be like that it's here's like the xbox one version slash x version or whatever looks fine then the series x version looks like the the ultra pc version of the game the kind of version that you'd be playing on a high-end pc which was which are nice improvements to have but are not the same thing as a game 
being designed as this is an Xbox Series X slash PS5 game. This is like the power profile, like minimum we expected to run at, not the like nice bonuses we put on top to like make the resolution higher and the frame rate or better in all those kinds of nice bells and whistles. Um, and I think one of the reasons why, if that is the case of mostly what we see, people might be a little bit disappointed by is that is mostly what we already see in video game trailers are the ultra PC versions of the games anyways, and yes. the culture of the console versions don't look as good as those. And I think people also have to prepare for what you just described is probably what a lot of games are going to be for a while. Yeah, because, especially third party. Yeah. yeah, because this is a particularly big power differential. It's going to be a slower start than most generations for a variety of reasons, including price and manufacturing and all that, not even bringing in COVID and stuff. Uh-huh. Um you know, Xbox clearly has kind of a strategy of of not making the break too clean too fast. So so we'll see. I'm excited to see something. Something's better than nothing. Yes. I mean, it's, I'm excited for in looking at any new video games is something I want to do because it has yes. been so sparse. It's like when, when the marquee release for the past few weeks is Streets of Rage 4, it just feels like... Not to put anything down on Streets of Rage 4, right. but Streets of Rage 4 is not that kind of game. No. It's it, like, it's not, it's not Call of Duty, it's not Assassin's Creed, it's not like the big, like, industry pusher kind of thing. It's a cool game that gets to be... It's, it's, it's the thing. kind of game that runs just as well on the Switch and the Xbox One X. Yes, yeah, you don't notice the difference, exactly, yeah. yeah. Like, it's, it's so, it just feels like, and again, this is exacerbated somewhat by um, COVID stuff, because we'd be coming up on the original release date for The Last of Us 2... But it's not entirely just that, because this yeah. would have been a sparse time for games anyways. But it just feels like that, combined with being like cooped up at home and not having like other outlets, yeah. um, it just feels like I need... Even though it was just a dumb CG trailer, I was like, oh my god, new video game something to think about. Like, new news and content and and like stuff coming out for video games to look forward to is just exciting. And Ubisoft always puts a good gameplay demo together, so I'm yeah. excited to see that. And just, like, this feels like I would, uh, yeah, I would prepare, everyone feel like this is part one of an ongoing conversation, yeah. this, this announcement. Because we know, Microsoft said, there's more coming in the summer. We know PlayStation's going to have to show stuff off at some point in the next few months. So hopefully that's all coming, and this feels like the nice first opening salvo, and we'll talk about it all next week. Yeah. So because there, I think it was Jason Schreier tweeted about that, like he's hearing that a Sony event is going to be like a week or two after what Microsoft is doing is what they've targeted. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to hear about all of it. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I'm very curious to see what's shown. Like, I if were there are going to be new games announced, like, or whether it's going to be a lot of stuff like Watch Dogs Three that like we know is coming out but has been MIA yeah. for a while. Um, That's yeah. an interesting thing to note. Like, Watch Dogs Legion was going to be a PS4, Xbox One game released in March. It got... Everything they had got pushed off the schedule. Not because of COVID. This was months ago. Yeah. And so we assume now Watch Dogs Legion is going to be a cross-gen, next-gen game. Um, but yeah, we haven't seen it in a while. Yeah. And that game looked awesome. So so the third Watch Dogs is now in the position of the first Watch Dogs, which is an unenviable position to be in given the first Watch Dogs. But yes. we'll see. All right. Um... On a different note, um, there were more details on the remake of Near Replicant this week in Famitsu. Yeah, that's true. Near Replicant version 1.22474487139. Yes, or the version of Near that is going to be on the PS4 and Xbox One. Yes, so the new version of Near Replicant, which if you don't know, 
is the game that came before Nier Automata. Um, but I just, people have translated some of these Famitsu details and they're pretty cool. Uh, the developers are calling it much more than a remaster. Uh, Takahisa Taura from Platinum Games, who was the lead designer on Automata and he was the director of Astral Chain. He is working with the devs of this version to refine the action to make it more like uh, Automata, make it more in line with what you would expect from that game. The camera work and the cutscenes will stay the same, but they're reworking a lot of other stuff, including the original Japanese VAs are coming back to re-record existing and new dialogue. The 2B and 9S voice actors are involved in some capacity, so we'll see what that is. And there are other new characters, as well as hints in this article of a new ending. So this is very much Yoko Taro doing a Yoko Taro-style remaster of his mm-hmm. game. And I think, for a lot of people, this is going to be treated kind of as a sequel to Nier Automata, I assume, in how uh-huh. it comes out, because most people, that was their first Nier game. This one will be, obviously, they're trying to bring it more in line with that by bringing, like, Takahisa Taura on and stuff like that. Um, and that's really cool. I think that's the yeah. right way to do this. And it make, this makes it one of the games I'm more excited to play in the upcoming months or year. Yeah, it is definitely, like, it, I mean, obviously, it was on my radar anyways because Nier Thomas is my favorite game. But it, like, makes me less prepared for, like, it's going to be a game that I find the story stuff and the music and all that really great and maybe have to suffer through what people generally just deride as, like, really generic, boring um gameplay and have just like you know even if it's like just a little bit more near automata e and more fluid and some like the movement stuff that they did in there in near automata that like like just punching that up a little bit i think would go a long way of just making it feel more like a modern game which it sounds like this is a remake not a remaster yeah or it, it sounds to me like it's like in between those this yeah. doesn't sound it's not final fantasy remake um, or Resident Evil 2 remake. It's not like that far, but it is more than we are doing, you know, we're getting some up assets and that kind of stuff. They're putting new content, re-recording the dialogue, updating some of the gameplay stuff, but, but like, they're not completely rebuilding the game from the ground up, clearly. Right, yeah. All right, well, we're looking forward to that. And finally, a game I know we're looking forward to is The Last of Us Part 2. Yes. Which had a lot of drama this week. Oh, uh, yeah, it's been a weird, it's been a weird fucking week around Last of Us. All right, so The Last of Us Part Two this last week, um, major portions of it were leaked online. Um, they were leaked initially on YouTube. It was videos taken from what looked like a debug build of the game. Um, I'm reading. I did have not looked up any of the uh, video, obviously, but this is what I've read. Uh, on Friday, Sony confirmed the leakers were not affiliated with Sony or with Naughty Dog or any partner studios, despite rampant speculation from the internet that this was a an aggrieved Naughty Dog employee who did mm-hmm. this. And just this morning, Sean, uh, Jason Schreer had a tweet where he read, and I'll just read his tweets here. Uh, After talking to two people with direct knowledge of how Last of Us 2 leaked, as well as some Naughty Dog employees, I have a good idea of what happened. Short version, hackers found a security vulnerability in a patch for an older Naughty Dog game and used it to get access to Naughty Dog's current servers. I think the footage that leaked is from devs playing an early build. Most importantly, rumors of this being an act of protest by a contractor whose pay was robbed are not true. This had been a big rumor, but as he points out here, Naughty Dog actually did extend pay and healthcare benefits for contractors due to COVID. We know Naughty Dog is not perfect by any means on labor but they have not ripped people off in times of covid they've actually been one of the more generous like workplaces in that Mm -hmm. regard um so we can put that dumb internet rumor to rest uh it also got caught up in the stupid culture wars because people are mad that last of us 2 has gay characters or something in it i don't it's yeah we'll just ignore them but that's part of what like sent all of this in the middle of this the last of us 2's release date which had been unknown since its pushback in may 
has been moved and confirmed to June 19th, pushing Ghost of Tsushima, the other final PS4 exclusive, to July 17th. So we will have this one last one-two punch of big PS4 games. Um, it's not, you know, I, I I don't know if you can say 100% they're putting out in June because of the leak. It's probably a conflux of things, but I think yeah, announcing I they, the date... Yeah, they clearly would have had that date set yes. before, they would have, before yeah. the leak stuff happened. Yeah, um, you know, I think my reading of it is... Based on, you know, we talked about this before. I don't think Sony wants to have these games in the fall pile up, right? Yeah. When they're prepared to put out a new console. So get them out in the summer. This seems fine. June 19th is a month delay. Probably enough to get physical copies pressed. Because that was the big concern. Because mm-hmm. the game is done. That, that, that's not the problem. It could have gone gold. Would have been fine. Um, it was pressing discs was basically the big big issue. So that's what they're doing. It's coming out in June. Um, yeah. And I'm, you know, we're both excited to play it. Don't listen to the assholes online. <laughs> Yeah. For now, and uh, avoid spoilers. So, so one thing I have to say now is, um, like, I looked at a bullet point list of the spoilers. Most, and, and let me like lay out why. Because so, right when this happened, um, before I knew that there were legitimate spoilers that got out on the internet, I basically saw something that like was, is this supposed to be some spoiler for Last of Us? And then. And then after that, I saw, oh, shit, there actually was, like, legitimate stuff that got out. And a lot of the, the, like, vague details I saw in the conversation around those details led me to draw conclusions about the game that made me think... Because generally, the the reaction around the information revealed in the leaks has been negative. And the way people were talking about it made me come up with the worst possible version of what Last of Us 2 could be, um, which my, like dark fantasy I had of like what would be the worst thing you could do that would make people react this way and I thought oh god Ellie's gonna die and Joel is gonna be the protagonist for most of the game was like my this is the worst premise for Last of Us 2 like like just a terrible rehash of what Last of Us 1 was and some of the things I saw led me kind of to that conclusion and I was like I just need to know whether or not that's real and so I didn't look at I didn't want to see any of the videos but I just looked at a basic bullet point of what like the handful of cutscenes that were out there revealed and that nightmare scenario of the game is definitely absolutely not what it is and i think the people who are reacting negatively to what the spoilers say are fucking stupid um because i am way more excited for last of us 2 now knowing basically what the pitch for the game is because there's been so guarded in their marketing um they haven't like told you most of what like the actual like premise of the plot is other than ellie and joel are in it and something bad's going to happen eventually um and knowing basically what the pitch of the game is and what they're doing i vaguely get why pe- why the people who are acting negatively are reacting their way but that's because those people are probably not imagining what like how naughty dog is actually going to execute on most of these details and what like 95 percent of the game is actually going to be and they're just focused on here's a couple of major plot twists that happen you see like in a contextless cutscene. Those people are idiots and aren't storytellers and aren't thinking about storytelling right. or anything. So I will say for me personally, based on what I saw and like the details I saw from that leak, I'm super excited for Last of Us 2. Okay. I have not seen anything. Yeah. Um, I avoided it. I, I did see some people, you know, making MAGA tweets about Last of Us somehow. Um, yeah, that got cool. wrapped up in there in ways that are like... It's when you know some of the spoiler stuff is also like, yeah, uh, some people are going to be fucking stupid about some of the stuff in this game. That's fine. All right. But yes. So thank you, Sean, for telling us that in case anyone was worried because the internet yeah. was mad. The internet likes to get mad. Yes. Also, they're, they're, 
coinciding with the legitimate leaks were a bunch of people jumping on. This is part of where I got my like, oh, is this what happens to the game? Is um, other people, it was like some 4chan fuckers went on and kind of created a fake leak that coincide with this one um, that says a bunch of stuff that is not in that game. Okay. Um, and so like some of the stuff that if you think you've been spoiled, some of that stuff might not actually be true. Yes. Yeah. All right. So this actually dovetails, Sean, into our final topic for today. Yes. I did a Twitter thread when all this came out because I was bored because I'm bored a lot these days. Mm-hmm. And I called it Jonathan's Spoiler Commandments because I have strong feelings about spoilers and spoiler culture. And I know you do too, Sean. Yes. And so I tried to make a list of like my – tried to lay out in like legalese as much as I could um, my spoiler commandments. And Sean, I want to go through them and see if you have any revisions okay. and we can make our weekly stuff spoiler commandments. Yes. Does this sound good? Yes. All right. So let's start with – I had five commandments and they have some sub-commandments. Okay. All right? That's how commandments work. Yes. Well, you know, I, I think God could have been a little yeah, more detailed. Thou shalt not kill – Except there is a real motherfucker. Like, he was like a Nazi or something. You know, I'll, I'll kind of look the other way. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, he had to bring them down on big slabs of rock. God couldn't write too much on them. That would have been too much for yeah. poor Moses. Yeah, mm-hmm. we all understand. All right, commandment one. If a story can truly be ruined by being spoiled, it was not a story worth telling in the first place. I call this the M. Night Shyamalan principle. Yeah, and this is, I think, the most... It's good that this is the first one because this yes. is the most important. This is the thou shalt not kill, although I don't actually know what was the first one. The, the first one is, I think, the, you know, thou shalt not make a craven image or something. Oh, it's, yeah. Okay, yeah. well, yeah. You know, God, maybe change your, your priorities to something. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, so that to me is the most important one. And it's the thing that is most frustrating about spoiler culture is people treating twists that happen in stories like that's why stories exist. And if you are not utterly shocked and surprised by some twist in the story that means it's a bad story it's like people who think that the word like a story being quote-unquote predictable is the worst thing a story could be those are bad people yes if you're one of those people you need to expand your media taste or something like i don't know where that comes from um but it is such an unhealthy destructive and limiting way to consume media um and it is like it means that you can't ever rewatch a movie or reread a book or replay. If like that's your attitude, there's no more predictable story than a story that you've already experienced. It also means you can never tell a story based in history or real life. Yes. Yeah. It means that there's no point in making a remake of a game. So it's like, you know, I know that they do some fun weird stuff with in place of Final Fantasy VII Remake. But like 95% or something of that game is just stuff that happens in Final Fantasy VII. So, you know... You can't spoil it. You can't spoil it. Like, it's just, it's a story that's already been told. And then most stories, if you've, you know, if you've watched Mobile Suit Gundam, most mech anime is predictable as shit. Like, I'm not, you know, I've obviously, I've already seen After War Gundam X before having seen it for the first time. When I was watching it for the first time, it's not like a lot of the stuff in After War Gundam X was like, oh my god, a Gundam protagonist that doesn't want to get into Gundam in this episode. Wow. Never seen that one before. In the same way that, like, when I watched Neon Genesis Evangelion, I wasn't, like, upset about it because Shinji doesn't want to get in the robot and I'd already seen Amuro do that. Like, that's not... Right. That's that's just genres, right? Like, yes. you can't enjoy a horror movie if you, you, like, need a horror movie to have a bunch of shocking twists because if most of the characters are going to die in your horror movie, because it's a fucking horror movie. You're not going to be scared and, like, shocked by it when it's the 50th horror movie you've seen, but that doesn't mean it's bad. 
Exactly. You know, the other way to explain this one, Sean, is that if you held the principle that being spoiled on a story is the worst thing that can happen to you, then we would have no reason to study the works of William Shakespeare yeah. or Jane Austen or Charles Dickens. Pick your favorite author. Someone who you just like, their names are synonymous with certain kinds of stories. Romeo and Juliet would be worthless to all of us. I mean, for fuck's sake. Romeo and Juliet tells you the entire plot of Romeo and Juliet in the first 14 fucking lines. The yes. prologue of Romeo and Juliet tells you everything that basically happens and that they fucking die and then the feud gets fixed. They that's, fuck and die and then the feud gets fixed. Exactly. That's not what she said, but it's perfect. Yeah, but that's that's what it is. This is something that, like, because I literally just taught Romeo and Juliet, like, two months ago. It feels like five years ago. But it's, like, one of the first things we did is we looked at the prologue, which is basically a sonnet, and, and we talked about how... You know, because because some of my students have exactly that mentality. They've come up in this weird media environment where people just think that it needs to be something new and shocking and surprising. And it's one of the, the tools they use to try to dismiss or think that reading something old isn't worthwhile. It's being like, it's just old. Everyone knows the story anyways. It's like, well, this is this is the experience that Shakespeare's audience had in his day. I mean, not even just with Romeo and Juliet, almost all of his plays are based on pre-existing stories, either whether it's history or it's like Romeo and Juliet already adapting some Italian tragedy that existed. Maybe his entire audience didn't read that tragedy, but it's a story that already existed in popular culture. It's not about it's shocking that Romeo and Juliet die at the end because you just didn't see it coming. It's shocking that they die at the end if it's a good Romeo and Juliet production because you don't want it to happen. You yes. want them to overcome like the miscommunications and differences and for everybody to live happily ever after. And that's what's shocking is that you watch the story where two teenagers through circumstances largely outside of their control, some of it they did have in their control, come to this tragic end and take their own lives. And that's sad and upsetting. But it's not something you never saw coming. The play doesn't want it to be something you never saw coming. Exactly. And, you know, I think the reason why, for instance, Sean, your, some of your students have this attitude is they've been raised in a media environment where not only do stupid people say this on the Internet, but it has infected storytelling. Because yes. we could also – I call this the M. Night Shyamalan principle to make fun of his terrible movies – I think it might more accurately be called the Westworld or Game of Thrones principle yeah. where like these HBO shows have gotten so up their own ass with like people on Reddit predicting things mm -hmm. that they've changed plot points yeah. to try to get one over on the audience even though that makes a noticeably worse story. Yeah. And Game of Thrones season 8 is just full of that shit. Like, you know, the whole thing where like Jon Snow has no culmination to his own story because it would have been too predictable for him to have the culmination. So we give it to Arya, who had nothing to do with that story at any point in eight seasons. Yeah, because it's like the most unpredictable story you can make is one that's just terrible. Because it doesn't follow yes. any build-up or setup or execution principles of like fundamental storytelling. Because most stories have a couple of like really, really basic things in common. Which is your like, you know, build-up, climax, denouement, like that kind of stuff. And the most shocking thing you can do is to just say, like, what if we just didn't do any of that stuff that good stories do? And we just intentionally do things that bad stories do, but they'll never see it coming. Yes. So don't do that. Yeah. So commandment one, I think we agree this is the most important commandment. Number two. Okay. Pursuant to commandment one, an out-of-context spoiler is not a replacement for experiencing the plot in its full context and judging a story based solely on what you hear on the internet is usually idiotic. With a sub-commandment, sub-commandment 2A, 
The only exception to this commandment is if the spoiler is something so obviously, flagrantly, and laughably stupid like Rey being Lil Palpatine in Star Wars. You can laugh at that. You should probably still see the full movie before deigning the full thing good or bad, but you can laugh at it. Yes. So, so this is one that's obviously very relevant to The Last of Us 2 leaks. That yes. people who are judging that entire game based on, like, what I think is like five minutes total of, like, cutscene footage spread across that game. And then for me, I didn't watch the videos, so it's just like those bullet points. If you're just like, oh, this is all this game is, it's just like this like little chunk of information and nothing else about character development, like transitions between these plot points, like proper thematic development, dialogue between characters, the the stuff that makes up the majority of stories that you engage with. Like if it's if you you can judge that entire story based on those plot points, there's no reason to watch movies. You just read Wikipedia summaries, right? Exactly. So you know, yeah. So so it's dumb to to treat those leaks that way and again it is like clear that a lot of people just read those bullet points and don't bother to think about what most of the actual story is going to be which is all the stuff outside of those bullet points um and then i can also just confirm that there's nothing in those spoilers that is like emperor like like ellie finding out she's the daughter of jesus i don't know i don't there's no there's nothing there's no there's, there's Last no of point. Us is too different from star wars to make that comparison there's no point where you find out there's there's an evil clown slasher in their community and joel turns out to be the evil clown slasher and you're like yeah. this doesn't feel like last of us because yes do you, do you agree that there are exceptions where you can kind of cross the line into such stupidity that you can make fun of it yes yeah i mean that's in the emperor palpatine one is the obvious one that's yes. like having Palpatine be Ray's grandfather is such a colossally stupid premise that like anyone can see it from a mile away as a bad idea that like you know I'm not going to say there's no way to make it work there are ways to make it work like you could get if you know you had a lot of time and a lot of talent behind it you could probably do something with that but it's, it's an idea that you have to actively work against to make a good story rather than have it be something that helps make it a good story, right? Yes. All right. So we agree on commandment two. Yeah. Commandment three. This might be the controversial one. You do not need to consume spoilers. And while mildly inconvenient, it is largely in your power to avoid them. It's 2020 and this is nobody's first internet rodeo. Commandment 3A. If you do accidentally run into a spoiler, it is not the end of the world. Pursuant to Commandments 1 and 2. Experiencing a spoiler does not equal every copy of the work being torpedoed into the fires of the sun. It is still there. You will be fine. And there are bigger problems in the world. Yes. Yeah. So this is the like, you know, eventually something will happen. You'll click on the wrong web page if you have like a bigger presence on the internet. Like I feel bad for anyone who's like a prominent member of like the game's press that is excited for Last of Us 2. Because I cannot imagine how you've managed to go unspoiled with like that many people you know like assholes on the internet trying to bombard you with that stuff right um so you know there are ways eventually like something will happen you'll get spoiled on something you didn't want to get spoiled on but like with me like i got something that i thought was a spoiler i was like i would rather just know and not have the uncertainty i'll just read the spoilers and if they're bad that'll if i think it looks bad it'll be a bummer if i think it looks good like i did it's like i'm actually more excited for the game like you know i honestly don't give a shit if like like I think, honestly, I would have personally preferred for Naughty Dog to put some of the stuff I now know about the game in a trailer because I think it would market the game better in terms of telling you what the game is and make me excited for it in that way. Because, honestly, knowing more about a thing is only going to, if it's a thing I like, 
is going to make me more excited about it, not less. So that's, and obviously that's a personal thing about how I feel about it. But, yes. Yeah. But I, I just want to be clear on also on like the, the first part of that commandment though. Like you do, there are occasions as you laid out where sometimes you will be accidentally spoiled. It is mostly in your power to avoid them. Oh yeah. And you, there's lots of stuff you can do that's very simple. Yes. And a lot of people bitch about some of this stuff. Like if spoilers exist, it's inevitable. And it's like, no, no, you no. have, it's 2020. It's the internet. We're fine. All right. Commandment four. Mm-hmm. Purposefully spreading spoilers for the express purpose of ruining the experience for people who care makes you an asshole and also signals you have no meaningful life to speak of. If you do this, you are trash. But there are a couple of notes on this one. Okay. 4A. Mentioning details on Twitter after something has aired or is out in the world, especially if you've thrown a hashtag on there which allows people to filter, that's okay. Pursuant to Commandment 3, people know where and what to avoid if they don't want to be spoiled. Discussing plot details responsibly does not equal irresponsible spoilers. Yeah. B. Caution should be expressed in person-to-person communication. If a movie show game has just come out and you're discussing a big moment out in public view of people whose viewing history is unknown, be careful not to spoil for strangers as there is no hashtag filter in real life. Sure. Like, So in that situation, are you saying like if you're in a crowded... I was going to say crowded theater, like it's the fire example, but that would be a weird yeah. way to talk about this. You're you're in a coffee shop with your buddy, and you both watched Star Wars like like that midnight, as it, right when it came out in the theaters. And you're and so most people wouldn't have seen it. Would it be um, impolite to to have a a discussion with that friend in in clear earshot of other people about? Bullshit from Star Wars. I think it probably would be if it like literally is like the day it came out. Okay. I, but I think it also depends. Like the, the situation I always think of is there's a joke in The Simpsons where it's a flashback and Marge and Homer are on a date and they come out of The Empire Strikes Back and there's a line waiting to go in and Homer goes, Wow, I had no idea Darth Vader was Luke's father. So that's... That's so, what I'm yeah. thinking of. Okay, yeah. Because cause I'll say that like for me, I think discussing... In public, like in in being afraid that someone who's not a part of your conversation will get spoiled, that's not yeah. at all like a concern for me. But this the very specific scenario of movie theaters where you are walking past people that are very likely to go watch Avengers Civil War or whatever that you just walked out of. Then I agree that like you need to make so, sure you're outside of that immediate vicinity. Where you know that people that there are people around you that are expressly interested in watching this thing that have not seen it yet, you should take reasonable precautions to avoid them overhearing those conversations. But like if I'm like like you know, if, if I was talking to you and we were outside in a public area, yeah. I would have no qualms about discussing spoilers from almost anything. Um, because it's just like we're just out in the public. Anybody who's he- overhearing our conversation is like a creep that's like eavesdropping yes. on us. So I've, there should be enough white noise that they wouldn't pick out our conversation anyways. I agree. So I've uh, amended it. Okay. Okay. So now it says if a movie show game has just come out and you're discussing a big moment in public in view of people whose viewing history is unknown, but you know are interested in the media object being discussed, be careful not to spoil for those individuals. Yes. That is. That's yeah. That's how I would phrase it. And I'm just going to say at the end there. Be polite. <laughs> yes. Be, yeah. Be polite. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's like, even though spoilers are not a big deal um, and people need to get over it and, and come to that realization, that doesn't give you an excuse to be an asshole to people. Exactly. Yeah. And finally, Commandment 5, also relevant to The Last of Us Part 2, leaking plot details, let alone an entire work, before that work is officially out in the world, is truly loathsome behavior. Sure. Yeah. 
But Commandment 5a, the same exception outlined in Commandment 2a applies here as well. We will call this the Lil Palpatine exemption. If you have learned Rey is the Emperor's granddaughter, no one could reasonably blame you for wanting to warn the public like a pop culture Paul Revere. Yeah, sure. Like, I, you know, I get that for the the people who are working like at Naughty Dog on the game that having spoilers out there sucks. But I am also someone that's just like, I think like I'm so in a, I don't give that much of a shit about spoilers obviously um that's like one hour after that game comes out for almost every single person playing that game it'll be as if the spoilers never happened like you don't remember and this is one of the reasons why like a lot of the discourse around the leak and it getting weirdly wrapped up with like labor discourse in the video on video game twitter which is basically made twitter was totally unusable for me for that those like two days because there's a lot of people that I respect talking about a thing that we had no reason to believe happened because there's absolutely no evidence indicating yeah. that the leaks were wrapped up in labor stuff um, at all. And now that I'm at this point, I forget. What was I talking about at the beginning of that sentence? Uh, that you don't care if people leak stuff? Oh, yes. Yeah. So it's like, you know, there are so there are reasons that people... So it's like in the hypothetical scenario that someone leaked something and it had some sort of labor impetus behind it i would agree you know i think the the potential benefits of if there was a directed action that this is something that's trying to make change in that studio the potential benefits are would so outweigh the potential limited negatives in like that small space of time in which it happens that i would agree with that broad thing but i've never heard of that happening exactly but i've never heard of that happening and i think the reason why people got caught up in that discourse is that our memory around leaks is so small that's like if you really stop and try to think about it most video games are leaked in pretty major ways all the time i mean for fuck's sake half-life 2 an entire pre like release build of half-life 2 was leaked on the internet months before that game actually came out like that wasn't just a couple of cutscenes that was the game was fucking playable by people if you knew how to get it so you know in the age of the internet Video games are the leakiest fucking ships around. There is no E3 that has happened in the history of this podcast where most of the announcements had not been leaked in some way, whether it's audio recording of a rehearsal that gets out there, whether it's someone on a train like left their phone and somebody found it and, and leaked a fucking PowerPoint presentation like Shadow of the Tomb Raider that happened with, whether it's a fucking Canadian Walmart that puts up listings for games most of which were real, and then a couple of them were, like, hilariously not, like, Forza Horizon 6 or whatever. Like, they jumped a couple of versions ahead. It happens all the time. Whether it's, again, plot details, marketing details, the whole trailers. It's a constant thing. We've, again, we've, as we said earlier, we've known what every setting for Assassin's Creed has been since, I think, three, at least a year ahead of those games. Like, it has been hilarious. Just, like, and I don't care. But- like, I don't care that I know that stuff ahead of time. So here's the thing. This commandment is not... I've rewritten it to be clear. Because the point of this commandment is not leaking relatively small details like what you're saying of like the setting of Assassin's Creed, the title of a new game, the existence of a game. What I'm talking about here is... And here's what I've rewritten. Okay. Leaking plot details or an entire work before that work is officially out in the world for the express purpose... Of spoiling material people care about, yeah. fanning the flames of anger, or causing undue damage to the developers is loathsome behavior. Yes, okay, that I'll agree with. Yeah, yes. there's, there's, because that is 
more or less what seems to have happened with the Last of Us Two yes. stuff. That it was a specific um, group of hackers that were intentionally trying to get this out, this information out, because. I mean, we don't know all the reasons, but it feels like it probably is maybe connected to some of the alt-right stuff. Yeah. It's my, like, gut reaction to that, because there has been, ever since, you know, Ellie kissed, um, I, I can't remember what, the new character in that Last of Us 2 trailer at E3 a couple years ago. Even though we already knew Ellie was gay, because it's not the first time Ellie has kissed a lady. But, but that happened on the biggest video game stage that exists in the world, or existed in the world. Um, the RIP E3, presumably. Yeah. Um, At like Sony's it, last ever E3. Yes, yeah. I mean, basically, yes. They put like a target on Naughty Dog for those people that are scum. So, like that, that, that feels like it's maybe connected. Again, we don't know, or the, the information of exactly who they were has not been released. We only know that they got this because they're part of some sort of hacking group. Yes. Yeah. Are there any commandments I haven't covered? Is there anything we should add? People being overly cautious about spoilers are annoying. I don't. That's not the most like elegantly phrased one, but you know what I mean. Of like, at some point, especially if you're an adult, you need to have the level of self control and maturity and frame of mind that like, if 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 you're with two friends and they say, you know, I'm really excited to see how the Final Fantasy VII remake handles Aerith dying. And if that's something that upsets you because you haven't played Final Fantasy VII, you need to get the fuck over yourself. Because Aerith dying has been a thing I've known since before I knew things. Like, I've existed in this world. I don't know when at at some point I knew that Aerith dies in Final Fantasy VII. I just know it. I've never gotten to that point in that game because I've never even gotten outside of Midgar. Um, It's supposed to be a very good sequence. I know what that cutscene looks like because I've seen that clip five million times. It's one of the most famous deaths in video game history you know, whether it should be or not, because it's not like, you know, JRPGs have been killing your party members since JRPGs have been a thing. But, or since JRPGs have had parties, basically. But, it, you know, it, it is a thing that you can't spoil Final Fantasy VII for someone. It's just, it's part of the cultural discourse. So people need to be reasonable about that kind of stuff. If a movie's been out in the market for a year and you haven't seen it, and someone, and you're with friends that have an idle conversation that says something about the end of that movie... Like, that's on you because you didn't watch that movie. If you didn't like that movie or branch that movie enough to go see it, that's your fault. Yes. Uh, okay, so I'm writing this out. Okay. Thou shalt not be overly cautious about spoilers to such an annoying degree. Thou shalt control thyself and be mature and recognize the difference between a story and the real world. Thou shalt know the difference between a plot point that has entered mainstream con- culture and a spoiler that is new and uh, not expected to be known. Yeah. Exactly. There's just... Thou shalt be a fucking grown up. Yeah, then that's what it feels like. Because I feel like this came up like big in the last year or so around specifically Final Fantasy VII. And like I've been very frustrated seeing some people bending to this weird popular will around like because a remake of Final Fantasy VII was coming out, that that like rewrote the rules on what constituted a spoiler or not it's like fucking no like it doesn't know like i like i don't know how you could possibly be someone who is even vaguely interested in video games and not know some of the basic details of what final fantasy 7 is yes. like that concept is just utterly foreign to it's me. look 
Norman Bates killed and stuffed his mother. Yes. Rosebud is the sled. Uh-huh. Like, these are just... You have Bruce to... Willis is a ghost. Yes. Kevin Spacey is Kaiser Soze. Like, these are just things we know. Yes. It's fucking... His girlfriend's head is in the box. Like, yeah. come on. You know, Darth Vader's Luke's father. Snape killed Dumbledore. We can get... These are not spoilers. No. There is a difference. Yes, so I think I think Commandment Six is important for that. Yeah, um, the the we'll call that the commandment about being an adult and knowing the difference between spoilers and plot and cultural plot consciousness. Exactly, and and, and it's informed by all the stuff that comes before it that establishes that just because you know ahead of time that Aerith dies, if that means that, that scene is then not impactful for you, guess what? That means that Aerith wasn't a good character and that scene wasn't well made. Like that's what that means. If, yes. If, if, like, for you, at least, in your personal media's taste, that means that that character and that story was not effective for you. And that's fine. It's not because it was spoiled for you. It's because you didn't like it that much. Yes. It's okay. So this commandment shall be known, shalt be known, as the be a fucking grown-up commandment and or the knoweth the difference between mainstream plot consciousness and actual spoilers commandment. Yeah, I like that. All right. So we've got six commandments. Is that good? Yeah. Suck it, God. We got it done to six. <laughs> All right, I'm going to end with a piece of listener mail, Sean. Okay. This actually came in while we were uh, talking. Okay. From my brother Thomas. Okay, that kind of listener. Yeah. <laughs> so I uh, to back up to on this. Okay. Um, there's a new Hatsune Miku game coming out this month. Sure. Have you yeah. seen it's Hatsune Miku Project Diva Mega Mix, right? That sounds right. That yeah. sounds right. I mean, all I, those games have like the same name. I yeah. Cannot, I, I, I got the demo for Switch, and I it's only two songs, but it's it's very fun. I might get that game. And I was showing Thomas because you know he's really into those Persona Four dancing games. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, maybe he should play some Hatsune Miku. So anyway, I was showing him that, and he just texted us and asked, "Do you or Sean have a recommendation for Hatsune Miku Project Diva X versus Future Tone?" I assume he's looking at these on the PlayStation Store. Oh, it's been like four years. What's um, the? Isn't Future Tone the one you played? So, because it is, it's really complicated because it's there's it's basically, I forget what the the game is called, but it, the, like the base game is a module or is a like base that you basically buy one of two or you can buy both of them like big dlc packs that gives you all of the games um because it's like the main game is Hatsune Miku I'm just going to type project diva and look at the complete searches on wikipedia or on google and see if that fixes my problem yeah because the future tone is one of the two packs and none of the neither of the packs the like the major packs that that constitute like the majority of the songs for that game are better than one or the other they just like i remember just buying the whole thing i'll just say like if you don't want to deal with with that because it is confusing because you have to buy you get like the base game which is free which is free and then 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 future sound and colorful tone are the two different major packs for classic miku project diva which I think maybe is, I think it has a fancy name for what the base version is, but it's just basically Hase Miku Project Diva because that series is actually just a series of arcade rhythm games in Japan. And they've just, this is like a big console version that puts all that stuff together. Okay, but there is a game, it says here, Hase Miku Project Diva Future Tone. Is that. That's probably the pack. And I assume if you buy that, it just gives you like all the material. The game. Okay. Or is Future Tone. I don't know. Okay, I'm looking at it here. Yeah. Future Tone. Is a bundle. It says, okay, Hatsune Miku Project Diva Future Tone bundle. Um, 
It says, this bundle gives all the content included in the two massive expansions, Future Sound and Colorful Tone. That's okay, what so you want. Future that's Tone full... is the combined thing. Yeah, yes. Future Sound and Colorful Tone are the two individual games. That okay. is correct. And that's 220 songs. You could just get that. That whole bundle is only 40 bucks, which is really good right now. Yeah. You could also just get the new one when it comes out. Um, that That's the Mega Mix one. And that one, from how I saw it looking, is that it's a $40 base game. And then there's a bunch of DLC song packs. And for 60 you get everything. So that's how the new one is working. Yeah, like and I, I don't know if there's. Yeah, I haven't or not. looked into the details of that one because I'll say that like the that main one on PS4 that has that module construction, like if you just want some hot hot Miku rhythm action, that is the game you want because it is just that distilled. A lot of the other Hot Miku games have fewer songs, but they have more like here's a little visual novel thing. Fuck that shit. The, I don't need this, that. I need just Hasne Miku in, in my veins. From the demo and what I've seen, this one is very much in the vein of what you're talking about. It's, yeah. it's not a visual novel. It, it's the say, It's got the same kind of list of songs. Um, it looks like it has, in the base game, 135 songs. So it's not light on songs. Yeah. Um, and I don't see any that I recognize on here, so I don't know if there's any overlap or not. But it's the first one that's coming out on Switch and not on PlayStation. Yeah. Well, it is on PlayStation as well, but first one coming to Switch. So like that's yeah, because because like Hasan Miku games have been like low key a Sony exclusive, basically. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, and it came out in Japan in February. This new one's coming out on May. But yes, if you want the one that's out on PS4 now and is like this that big definitive arcade version, you want the Future Tone big combo pack. It just gives you everything. Okay, so it looks like there's 91 songs that are overlap from the previous Project Eva games. So okay, that's, that's still a, a good, a really sizable chunk of new songs. Yeah, and if if you and, yeah, and if you have a Switch, that means you're not missing out on as oh, much. Yeah, yeah. If you're a Switch owner and you want a Hatsune Miku, that seems to be the thing to get. I'll say that like I haven't played every song in Hatsune Miku Project Diva, and for like yeah. I've tried, I've gotten over half the way there, but it is a lot of fucking Hatsune Miku songs. Yes. The the thing the the proof of the pudding for Mega Mix will be whether or not there is the photo mode, which is secretly the best part of that Project Diva game. Um, because I will never change my Twitter avatar. I refuse. Yes, it is. I, it is the perfect Twitter avatar. Like I went when I uploaded that um, subbed video to my YouTube channel. I had that YouTube channel is just I, the only other video on there is like a weird PS4 share factory thing I made just to see how that worked, um, which has like 380 something views, which I don't know. That's just been sitting on YouTube for like five years. So people have been watching that somehow. Um, but it had been my old Patrick Troughton profile picture that I had had forever and I was like I mean I love the Patch Troughton picture but I feel like my online identity is the Sonic Miku overlooking and protecting the world this is what I strive to be in my everyday life so I updated that that picture it was like I need to make sure I'm consistent on the internet I would be surprised if it didn't have that just because the user interface on the demo is so similar okay yeah. um, but we'll see so it's going to be so if it clears that that'll be a good hurdle the, uh, the second hurdle Will it have Sonic Miku in it? I'm very interested to find out. We'll see. There's no reason it couldn't be. No, because it's just Sega. Yeah, it's just Sega, yeah. and it's not a Sony exclusive. So I might get this game because, again, the base version is 40, and it's 60 for everything. And I, I would like to have Hatsune Miku on my Switch. That's a good Switch game. Yep. But um, we'll see. All right, we so that's our see. listener mail. Thank you for this, maybe the most all-over-the-map podcast we've ever done. Yeah, we just had a lot of stuff pent up, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. All right. Well, we'll see you guys next week. We'll talk about something. It might be Gundam. It, well, there'll probably be some. There will at least be some Gundam. It, it's, it's, it's us. Yeah. It's you know. I'm probably going to end up just subbing, subtitling that Haman Karn section. 
This is going to um, be good. Yeah, so we'll do Gundam something, probably, hopefully. We'll see.